we'll go ahead and get things rolling. And basically, the way I, the reason I set this up originally is so I could have a back and forth with John. I'm not sure John's last name, but he w- works over at Swan. And so just want to give them a, a quick shout out. And John and I have been going back and forth today, basically about the Fed's balance sheet and more specifically bank reserves. And do they matter? Or does another thing we were discussing is does the Federal Reserve facilitate more government spending? Uh, the example he used is 2020, where within the span of call it three weeks or three months, something like that, I think the Fed increased the size of their balance sheet by like two or three trillion dollars. And his position was. Okay, if the Fed would not have stepped in and bought all of those treasuries, then interest rates would have been a lot higher, and therefore it would have made it more onerous for the government to borrow money. That was one thing we were going back and forth on. Uh, but the main thing is really, and I think when I go through the details and kind of my views, uh, a lot of people come to the conclusion that, okay, George, I get what you're saying. But why does it matter? What's the point? Let's just assume that the banks don't need the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Uh, let's assume they can settle. Let's assume they don't need base money. Who cares? Well, that's actually a really, really big deal. Because if you turn on CNBC or Bloomberg or listen to most podcasts, or uh, if you listen to um, you know even people here on FinTwit and whatnot, it's all about the Fed's balance. I mean, every single thing that you hear is about QT or QE or reverse repo or the TGA or the amount of liquidity that the Fed is going to pump into the system or the amount of liquidity that the Fed is going to extract from the system. You guys have heard this, I'm sure, at nauseum over and over and over and over and over and over again. Right. So the question is, does that matter? Right. So John's point, I hate to put words in his mouth, but uh, I I think I understand his position quite well. Uh, John's point was, well, George, the Fed's balance sheet absolutely matters because let's just say the BTFP. Right. Uh, When all these banks were going bust in 2023 in March, and we may see that play out here in the next <laughs> few few weeks again based on what's happening with New York Community Bank. But he says they can come in and they can create bank reserves. They can create base money. And therefore, this bails out the system. And that is anti-deflationary, which is an argument that I think was originated by my good friend, Lynn Alden. And this is unequivocally true. Absolutely. The Fed can create base money and they can bail out a bank or going back to the GFC, you know, they can take all those toxic assets off the bank's balance sheet. They can replace them with bank reserves. And that does increase the amount of reserves in the system and it bails them out. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And is that anti-deflationary? In that moment in time, yes, because if the Fed would not have bailed them out, then those banks would have gone bust. And a lot of the monetary supply, you know, M2, as basically commercial bank liabilities. Uh, so that would be very deflationary, right? But what's the difference between the Federal Reserve bailing out 
so let's just say Silicon Valley Bank and JP Morgan because JP Morgan they didn't they wouldn't have to use bank reserves and let's remember that Silicon Valley Bank they didn't need bank reserves they, they didn't need green pieces of paper they they just simply needed money right so if JP Morgan would have purchased those treasuries or even would have given them a loan forget about it, just giving them a loan for the cash broad money they would still be in business today so again the the, the svb issue is is not really a, an issue with bank reserves they didn't go bust because there just weren't enough bank reserves in the system they went bust because they make bad decisions with their balance sheet and liquidity was tight meaning bank liquidity right no one wanted to lend to them because the the, the risk was too high it's not that no one wanted to lend to them because they didn't have enough bank reserves, right? And again, going back to why this is so important is because if it is true that the banks not only don't need reserves, but they don't even like reserves. In, in other words, they would prefer to not settle on the Fed's balance sheet. If this is true, then why on earth are we sitting here obsessing over the reserves going from 3.5 trillion down to 3 trillion why are we obsessing about the additional quote unquote liquidity that is going into the banking system from reverse repo by the money market funds buying treasuries and therefore taking those reserves from the reverse repo account up to the bank accounts that they have with the Federal Reserve, or what's the difference between that and uh, the TGA taking their balance from $60 billion, let's say up to $600 billion. Okay, well, that's bringing reserves from the banking system, still on the Fed's balance sheet, but bringing bank reserves from the banks down into the TGA. So, th therefore, you know, we're sucking liquidity out. Well, look, if bank reserves don't matter, then mechanically, that's not going to impact the market. Janet Yellen could take the TGA up to $2 trillion. She could take it down to $10 billion. Same thing with reverse repo. And it's and if, if, if the reserves are not being used, if they don't matter, then mechanically, that's not going to mean anything to the banks. But you see, the narrative is that, and, and it's obvious why, right? Because for those of you who have, I'm sure, studied this or studied uh, economics a lot more than I have, I've never taken a class in economics or any of this stuff, which most of you know. I'm sure a lot of you probably have your degree in economics. But what we're taught is that there's a money multiplier, right? So the Fed creates reserves, and now all of a sudden, oh my gosh, the banks have these reserves, and therefore they can loan them out. But if the banks don't have any reserves, then they can't create any loans. Or if the, bank, the more reserves the banks have, then the more loans that they can create. So if the Fed is taking its balance sheet, or the amount of reserves, let's say, from $40 billion, which there was in 2007, up to, let's say, $4 trillion, well, oh my gosh, this means that the banks can just go on a lending spree, and that the banks are just going to lend to everyone, no matter what's happening. But again, if the banks don't use reserves, then outside of a crisis, the Fed could take the reserves up to ten trillion. Take it up to a hundred trillion. It's not gonna. It's not gonna do anything, right? Where most people 
would have said that, oh my gosh, if you take the reserves up to 10 trillion or whatever, that's going to create hyperinflation. I mean, they would have said that back in the day. Uh, in fact, they were saying that. In fact, that's what uh, Ben Bernanke was actually worried about. Just, it wasn't just the gold bugs and the sound money guys and the Austrians. Ben Bernanke himself was worried about creating, maybe not hyperinflation, but worried about creating massive amounts of inflation by taking the amount of reserves in the system from $40 billion up to, you know, let's just call it $3 trillion or $4 trillion or whatever it was. How do you know this? Well, because prior to QE, the, the Treasury general account, we call it the TGA, most of their money, the Treasury's money, was held not on the Fed's balance sheet, although the TGA still existed. It just wasn't used. It was actually held on the balance sheets of the commercial banks. Uh, the accounts were called T, T, and L accounts. I believe that's treasury taxes and loans or something like that. But they were just basically checking accounts like you and I have. But what Ben Bernanke did is he went to Paulson or whatever, whoever was in charge at the time. He said, hey, listen, if you do me a favor, just all the money that you're getting from taxes and selling treasuries and all this stuff, uh, do me a favor and bring those onto the Fed's balance sheet. So that's going to suck reserves out of the banking system and bring them into the TGA, where if you just left them in those TTNL accounts, then those reserves would still be with the banks. So again, it, it wasn't just you know the, the Peter Schiff types uh, that were warning about this or worried about this. It was actually Ben Bernanke himself, right? But that's because Ben Bernanke thought that reserves matter. He thought that banks, for some reason, use reserves. So the the main argument that I would make against this, as far as the, the banks using reserves, is um, just just looking at the amount that we had. And so you can look at some data. It's called H3 data. You can just Google it really easy, just H3 data uh, fed. And you go back, you know, I go back to the mid-80s, I don't I don't know how far back the H3 data goes. It might even go back a lot further than that. But what's fascinating is you not only see the amount of bank reserves, but just for those of you who don't know, the amount of bank reserves as measured by the Fed actually includes vault cash. So it's not just a measurement of the electronic reserves uh, that the banks have with the Fed. It's also their vault cash. So now, I had a uh, – Brent Johnson – I did a video on this the other day, and Brent Johnson called me up. And he said, you know, I watched your video. I, I totally agree. It makes sense. You know, I, I like the video. But his – what he was wondering is out of that vault cash, how much of it is actually stored at the Fed and how much of it is stored at the banks? That I don't know. That I do not know. And that actually matters quite a bit because let's just assume for a moment that that vault cash was stored at the bank. Well, if it's stored at the bank, there's a very low probability that the banks would use that to actually settle. It's not going to, you know, especially in 2007, you know, it's not like they're going to send Brinks trucks back and forth every single time that they're settling and netting out with, with chips and whatnot, <laughs> a clearinghouse. It's probably not happening, right? So they're either going to be doing it on their balance sheet or elect, they're going to be doing it electronically, somehow is the point. But Brent uh, brought up a great, uh, point, he said that, well, if the vault cash is actually at the Fed, then they could just settle with a ledger system and the money really doesn't have to physically change locations. And 
It's a great point, but how much of it is where I don't know. So let's just assume for a moment that 100% of the vault cash is actually sitting at the Fed. Uh, okay, well, in 2007, you had $40 billion, $40 billion. Now, I'd like to point out that the electronic reserves was only $8 billion, $8 billion. But let's just assume for a moment that it's 40, right? That means that with 7.5 trillion in M2 money supply, and keep in mind, keep in mind that you've got to not only include the M2 in the United States, but you've got to include it outside of the United States, at least the dollar M2, because that's how the theory goes, right? That everything's settled on the Fed's balance sheet. With, with bank reserves, because those are what matters. So if you've got, uh, you know, French bank XYZ that has a dollar account with ABC Corporation, and ABC Corporation wants to send, uh, call it $100 million to another bank in the Bahamas, and if you believe that that has to be settled with bank reserves, well, then you also have to include the dollar M2 globally. So. In 2007, it was about 7.5 here in the U.S., but I think it's safe to assume that globally, especially since 70% of the transactions are settled in dollars, if the global GDP at the time is, let's say, you know, $75 trillion, then it's safe to say there's probably $50 trillion outside of the United States. So let's just say it's a combined total of $50 trillion. You're telling me that with $50 trillion, we're, we're settling every single night? With forty billion, obviously that's not possible. Just it it just doesn't work, right? And that's giving the reserves the benefit of the doubt, assuming that there was forty that they could actually use. If that vault cash was actually at the banks, then that would mean there was only eight billion, eight billion on fifty trillion of dollar M two, right? So again, it might as well have been zero. Literally, it, it might as well have been zero. So. I don't think, and, and to, to John's credit, I don't think he even disputes that prior to 2008, the, the, the banks did not use reserves. I mean, they just, they just didn't use them, right? And what's also interesting is to go back uh, in time to 1980 and how many reserves did they have in the system? That was $40 billion, exact same in 2007. It didn't increase at all even though M2 went from 1.5 up to 7.5. But let's go back even further. Let's go back to, call it 1950, right? How many reserves were in the system? About 25 billion. So from 1950 to 2007, the amount of reserves went from 25 billion to 40. And you're going to somehow tell me that the banks are using reserves? That's, it's not possible, right? So uh, another thing that we were debating, you might give some food for thought, is does the uh, Fed contribute to consumer price inflation, right? Is the Fed the reason why you look at that chart of the dollar from 1913 to today and you see that it's lost like whatever, 99% of its value? Uh, well, most people say, well, it's obvious the Fed's just printing money. The Fed's printing money. The Fed's printing money. Maybe, but maybe not. Because again, going back to these reserves, right? From 1950 to 1970, I've got this just right off the top of my head because I did a video on it. The amount of consumer price inflation, as measured by the government, compounded over that 20-year time span was right around 65%. 65%. So the dollar 
relative to goods and services in the United States lost a, a, a massive amount of value for sure. But the Fed's balance sheet or the amount of reserves in the system in 1950 was literally identical to what it was in 1970. There was no change, none, zero. So the point there is that you cannot blame the Fed. Now, I blame the Fed for a lot of things, true. I think we should end the Fed and all of these, even if their balance sheet doesn't matter, right? But you can't sit there and say that the dollar lost value from 1950 to 1970 because of the Fed, because the Fed didn't do anything. Literally, they didn't do anything, right? So it's the same thing with the reserves going back to 2007. So the point is, if the banks didn't need them then, why would they need them now, right? Or maybe before we ask that question, we've got to go back and assume that if the banks didn't use reserves prior to 2008, there had to have been a reason why. It wasn't because there were just no reserves in the system. Because I've read the Fed minutes, not the Fed minutes, I've read the Fed uh, annual summaries of open market operations in the 1990s. And they specifically say, they explicitly say over and over and over again, that they create however many reserves the banking system wants. And that's the Fed saying this, not me. And if you read that paper on the monetary system that the Bank of England wrote in 2014, they say the exact same thing. It's, it's the banks lend, and then the central bank creates reserves around however much they're lending. See? So if they weren't using reserve, there had to have been a reason why. And the only conclusion that I can come to is that there was some disadvantage to using the Fed's balance sheet. Maybe it was cost. Maybe they didn't want the Fed to know what they were doing. But, but there was some reason why they weren't doing it. It was some reason why there was some reason why it was far more efficient to go ahead and settle on their balance sheet. So why would that not be the case today? Why would it not still be more efficient for the banks to settle on their balance sheet without using the Fed? You see? So now we can go back to 2008 or 2009 when the Fed came in. And they changed everything. Yes, it is true that now we are in a regime of ample reserves, if you want to call it that. But does that change the reason and the rationale for the banks doing what they did prior to, Q, uh, to QE? I don't think so. So now, obviously, this is a debate. No one knows for sure. No one knows for sure. But we know definitively what happened prior to 2008. Now, one of the arguments that people make is, well, George, now they have to have reserves. And therefore, the Fed is in charge of liquidity because we have all these regulatory rules that we didn't have prior to 2008. But I find that hard to accept because I've also read a lot of the Fed uh, statements and press releases and blog posts and whatnot when we actually had reserve requirements. And back in the day, even the Fed comes out in the 1990s and the 2000s, and even Alan Greenspan talked about how the reserve requirements are a joke, that they don't, they don't even mean anything, that the banks set up sweep accounts to get around the reserve requirements. And the Fed knew this, and they still didn't do anything about it. Why? <laughs> because I think they knew that the banks are going to do whatever they're going to do. I mean, at the end of the day, if a bank sees an opportunity to make money by making a loan, 
which is creating money or dollars that didn't exist before, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. I, I challenge you or anybody to tell me a story of JP Morgan going to a client and saying, you know what? We would love to lend you $10 billion because our fees on that are going to be, let's just say $500 million. But unfortunately, we can't right now because of this stupid Basel III. Or unfortunately, we can't right now because, darn it, we just don't have enough bank reserves. Would you honestly think that Jamie Dimon has ever said that? Even back in 2007? Of course not. Of course not. So again, and I'll open it up to discussion here. But the, the reason this is so important is because if my hypothesis, and I granted it's a hypothesis, if this is true, it doesn't mean that the Fed can't bail out a bank and that doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if risk in the banking system is, let's just say, normal, whatever that is, let's just say that it's a constant, right? What the Fed, or so let's just say the risk level is what we saw in 2015, 16, 17, 18, right? Or 2022, something like that. The Fed could be taking their balance sheet to $5 trillion. They could be taking it down to $500 billion. They could, they could do anything. And it's not going to impact liquidity. It's, it's just not. It's not going to mean anything. It's not going to matter mechanically. Now, could it matter psychologically? Well, sure. But an Indian rain dance matters psychologically, right? And, and this, is, I think, is probably the best analogy that I can use. You know, back in the day... These Indian tribes actually thought that if that witch doctor, whatever the hell they called him, comes out and does this little dance around the fire, then that's somehow going to make it rain. And therefore, they're going to go out and they're going to buy more seeds and they're going to plant crops and they're going to do everything. Right Now, does that witch doctor actually have the power to make it rain? No, no. But if people believe that he does, then they're going to take actions based on that. And I would argue that the Fed, even in managing interest rates, forget QE for a minute, even managing interest rates is the exact same thing as that witch doctor. From a standpoint of if the witch doctor waits, let's just say he sees some clouds coming that he knows are most likely going to produce rain, and then he comes out and starts dancing, and then he takes credit for producing the rain. Okay, well, did the guy, again, did the guy have control over the clouds and the rain? Or was he just following what the clouds and the rain, the weather system, was going to do anyway? And I think it's the same thing with the Fed and interest rates. Right? Is the Fed out there setting rates, even at the front end of the curve? Or are they just looking at the two-year and saying, well, the market thinks we should lower rates. So, hey, let's just go ahead and follow the two-year. And, and Jeff Gunlock points this out all the time. That going back to, I don't know how far you go, the 70s or whatever, the, the Fed just, the two-year goes down, six months later, the Fed does the exact same thing, right? So in that case, is the Fed setting interest rates? I would argue no. It's the market that's setting interest rates, and the Fed is just simply following them. So anyway, that's kind of the the, the back and forth, and I'm sure with, uh, uh, you know, another uh, argument that I think John may have had, is that there is a substantial difference between base money and broad money because broad money is simply a claim on base money. But I'm not arguing. I think that's – everybody gets that, right? 
Everybody gets that. The, the question is, does it matter? Because, you know, if broad money, meaning the money that banks create, let's just say the, you know, all these dollars liquidity that we're talking about, even if that's just a claim on a green piece of paper or a bank reserve, if those, if that broad money is accepted the same exact way, is there a difference? And the example that I'll use to kind of illustrate this would be Silicon Valley Bank, right? Did Silicon Valley Bank go bust because they didn't have enough green pieces of paper? Did Silicon Valley Bank go bust because they didn't have enough bank reserves or base money? No, they went bust because they didn't have enough money, period. It's not like the customers were going down to the Silicon Valley Bank ATM and just taking out all these $100 bills. Now, they might have been doing that, but that's not what made them go bust. What made them go bust is all the customers calling in or going on their app or whatever they did and transferring their money out of Silicon Valley Bank, or not their money, but more specifically, their commercial bank liabilities, transferring those commercial bank liabilities from Silicon Valley Bank to another bank. And Silicon Valley Bank didn't have any way to settle. They didn't have, they, they didn't have the ability to settle that transaction. Now, if they would have had broad money, let's say credit from JP Morgan, could they have settled that transaction? Sure, sure. They didn't need the Fed's balance sheet. They didn't need base money for that. They just needed money, period. So anyway, uh, I think hopefully you guys get my point there. So we've got some people that have requested. That's fantastic. Let's start a dialogue here. And I'd love to get into any questions or comments. And, you know, look, if you guys think I'm absolutely crazy, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you because if you have, you know, facts and some rationale and data to back up your position as to why I'm crazy, I'd love to hear it. And then we can go back and forth and back and forth. And at the very least, hopefully uh, we get people thinking. And at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. Okay. Saffron, you're up. Hey, wow. What an honor. I've been watching uh, your videos for some time and, uh, you know, all of this is correct, incorrect or anything. Um, obviously I, I believe in a lot of stuff that you say. So, but the one thing that, that did kind of come up that I was trying to address and looking through your videos and comments and stuff where is if, is if, if the fed doesn't matter in these situations, what should I be watching? Should I be watching M2? Should I be watching credit tightness? You know, are they just doing all this stuff off, off risk? You know, if the risk, if the risk situation between, you know, the markets and the, and the Fed align with with the banks, and they're going to do more bank lending. You know, or what, what if I if I shouldn't be looking at all these things to not matter? What what should I be looking at? I think he nailed it. Risk, because that's what impacts liquidity. At the end of the day, if if the if risk, you know, I was doing a whiteboard video and I talked about this today. I think I might have even talked about it on a live stream, where if, if we could measure perceived risk within the banking system prior to March of 2023. And let's just say that we could measure it on a scale of one to 10. And the amount of risk in this perceived risk in the system was a five. Um, if we can safely conclude that the amount of risk in the system is now higher than a five, let's say it went up to a 10. And then because of the BTFP, the Fed brought it back down to uh, eight or something like that. If it's higher then we can safely conclude that money is tighter, at least between banks. And I think that New York Community Bank is a shining example of that. So the argument that New York Community Bank made was they took on the assets or they took on some of the balance sheet, or maybe all the balance sheet, I don't know, of Signature Bank 
probably not a smart move. And and then all of a sudden now, and this you know nine months later or whatever, all of a sudden now they've got oh my gosh, we, we we've got all these regulatory requirements that we didn't know about, and we, we've got these adjustments in the way that we're doing our accounting with these loans that we didn't know about, and you know my position on that was how did you not know? Like of course you knew that that was going to happen. You did due diligence before taking on Signature's balance sheet. So you knew this was going to happen. But what you didn't know was going to happen is that the market or the other banks within the network, which really matters, they now see you in a different light. Basically, what they did is they just borrowed from the discount window, right? That stigma that we always talk about, which the Fed is trying to get rid of with the discount window. That's basically what New York Community Bank did. And now we go into this regime, let's say, where the perceived risk within the banking system is higher. Therefore, money, if you will, or the extension of credit is tighter. Now, all of a sudden, all of this liquidity that they had access to to before, they no longer have access to. And that's why I think you're seeing, um, you know, when you read between the lines with what they're saying, that's the real problem. And, you know, I just did another live stream based on this Zero Hedge article that came out today on the other regional banks. And I did not I, I knew that the bank stocks really took a hit yesterday, but I didn't know what they were doing today. I got kind of busy with other things. But I went through this Zero Hedge article, which I'm just kind of looking at right now. And we had they say so today, not yesterday, but today they had shares of Zion Bank Corp. Uh, Co-America, Webster Financial, Citizen Financial, Region, Regions Financial, South State, Prosperity, Schwab, PacWest, and Huntington all crash once again. That was today, not yesterday. And of course, they crashed yesterday as well. So what to me this is signaling is that the amount of risk is, is really, really, or it didn't go away. Right. So and again, you know, the BTFP can say that temporarily uh, caused the risk to go back down. OK, and I think that's a good argument. And in that case, the Fed's balance sheet mattered. But what did we really need the Fed's balance sheet for that? Or would it have been the exact same thing if JP Morgan would have come in or the government for that matter? If the government would have come in with basically a, a guarantee saying that, okay, we're going to extend credit to these banks, the FDIC or Janet Yellen, would it have made it? No, it would have been the exact same thing, right? So it, it's really tough to say that the Fed is the only thing that's anti-deflationary and therefore their balance sheet is money printing when you could say that about anything, right? Then, then any bailout from any entity would effectively be money printing. I mean, I use the example 2009, just changing the regulations uh, the the mark to market regulations. You know, there's a good argument that that's really what brought the banks back from oblivion. Okay, well, what was changing that regulation? Money printing. You know, where where are you going to draw the line there? That that's where it gets really uh, confusing. Although I completely agree, completely agree that uh, the Fed's balance sheet in that case where, where there's a crisis and they come in and bail out an entity then that is anti-deflationary, absolutely 100%. But that doesn't mean that in normal conditions, if the Fed takes their balance sheet from $3 trillion to $3.5 trillion, or the amount of reserves, that that's going to impact the banks at all. 
you're just like my dad used to. You're pissing in the wind. Yeah, and that's 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 the main point. In in that situation, obviously, that's you know you went into a, a higher risk on environment, and the Fed steps in and, and lowered risk artificially. You know, so it still goes with that. But yeah, yeah, but they didn't eliminate the risk, right? They just kicked the can down the road because the Fed's always going to be behind the curve. They don't know what's going on. So if they would have been ahead of the curve, then Silicon Valley Bank would still be here. You see, so again, they might be able to reduce it temporarily, but they don't get rid of it. Sooner or later, it's going to come back, and sooner or later, rubber's going to meet the road. Yeah. Well, I'll let uh, somebody else pop up, but man, uh, so amazing to have this conversation today. It's uh, I've been <laughs> literally for like a week running down through everything, you know, recalibrating my mind away from velocity and M two to, you know, trying to think more of, you know, yield curve. Uh, what exactly, you know, risk, risk between the two years and 10 and, and everything and kind of looking at everything from that angle, from everything you've been talking about. And yeah, uh, just look at the curve. I mean, that's a great point. If you want to know what the risk is that the, the curve tells you, you know, as long as the curve is inverted, then it's telling you, uh, forget George Gammon, the curve is, is telling you everything you need to know about risk, especially if we get a bull steepener. Now, if we start to get a bear steepener, uh, meaning that the short-term rates stay the same and the 10-year goes up to, let's say, 6%, 7%. Now, that's an uninversion due to a bear steepener. If that happens, that's the market telling you that, hey, the the risk is 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 getting a lot better. The, the risk is getting, the, the risk is going down. But when you see the curve invert or uninvert due to a bull steepener, that's the market telling the, the yield curve telling you that the risk is not decreasing, it's increasing. Awesome. Thank you again. It was great talking to you. Thanks again for watching. Okay, we've got Gordon here. Let's uh, add him as a speaker. Okay, Gordon, you're up. Hey, thanks for uh, <clears throat> thanks for having me up. Um, sure. I, I joined, I think, pretty late. I've been on for maybe two minutes. I just had a quick question, maybe okay. an observation, um, and then a yep. question. So <clears throat> you say the Fed doesn't matter. But in, in some of the analysis I've done, and I'm not saying this is the be-all, end-all, but I'm looking at three key items, the Fed balance sheet, the Treasury General account balance, and the reverse repo account balance. And the way that we calculate liquidity in the U.S. is you know, Fed balance sheet minus reverse repo minus TGA. That, that in our view, gives you the actual private money um, in the system. Um, so the amount of bank reserves. In, in the, the amount of reserves held by the banking system, because when you take those reserves to your point in the TGA, now they're not held by the banks, or they're in reverse repo. But if they go from reverse repo, if that's you know bought with a T bill, then that goes back up into the banking system. So you're just looking at the amount of reserves held by the banks, right? Uh, no, it's it's actually it's not the reserves. I I, I look at that separately. But I guess oh, okay. Here, here's my point. My point is when you say the Fed doesn't matter, and I, I don't know if that's what you're saying, but I guess that's the title. Um, if you think about last year, right, in March, March of 2023, you had the quote-unquote banking crisis. You could, some people argue it wasn't a crisis, but whatever, you, you could call it a crisis. And, you know, the Fed's balance sheet exploded higher in, I think, over two weeks by roughly $450 billion, right? And mm -hmm. that was for the, you know, the BTFP and the OCF, you know, quote-unquote emergency lending facilities. And at that point, you know, stocks, you know, reversed higher and surged all year, right? So, then you had the, you know, most of last year, you had Janet Yellen working down the TGA, which is, a, is de facto, you know, basically liquidity flowing into the market. And then that, that balance neared its, you know, its low and all the bears got excited, including myself at the time. 
is that okay? You know, we're going to get back to real markets. And then when she started to reveal fill the TGA, all of a sudden the reverse repo started to drain. Um, so I guess my point is, you know, that reverse repo money is effectively excess QE money that was printed over the 2020 to 2022 timeframe that was essentially sitting dormant. And what happened was the reverse repo overnight rate fell below the you know, short-term T-bill rates. And thus, you know, instead of that money sitting in the RRP, it flowed out of the RRP to buy Janet Yellen's bond issuance. Right. So I guess I say all that to say, and here's the question, given the Fed printed the RRP money that's now being used to fund Janet Yellen's bond issuance, given the Fed stepped in last year when you had the quote-unquote banking crisis, and you know their balance sheet went up and, ex- and stocks exploded higher. I guess how can you come to the conclusion that the Fed does not matter? Thank you. Okay, well, great question. Uh, but again, let's go back and look at the amount of bank reserves in the system. If you want to, you know, use that as a proxy for liquidity. Uh, let's say 2015 to 2019. And uh, if you want to. Or you probably know this chart right at the top of your head, but the amount of bank reserves went down significantly. But uh, right at the top of my head, I think it went from uh, maybe three, four trillion down to like two trillion. It, it was a massive decline. Um, and so, what if if that liquidity, to your point, uh, was being cut in half? You would expect the stock market to crash. But if you look at the stock market from 2015. 2019, it actually went up almost in a straight line. So I don't dispute the fact that over the last couple of years, there has been some correlations uh, between you know what's happening with the Fed's balance sheet and let's say the stock market. But you have to take it in its entirety, right? You can't just cherry pick and say, well, this time it happened, therefore, there's a causal component here. You've got to look at also all the times when the Fed increased or decreased and there was no correlation, if not a negative correlation, you see? So that that's – and then I'd also – you said that you just caught the last two minutes, which I, I, I totally get. But earlier in the conversation, I talked about how prior to 2008, the banks did not use bank reserves. And I don't – if you look at the data, I don't even think that's debatable. Uh, because of the level of bank reserves that were in the system, it m- might as well have been zero. So how was the system – was there zero liquidity in 2007? Like if the stock market went up from 2002 to 2007 or the stock market boomed in the 1990s, how? How did that happen if the Fed wasn't – producing any liquidity? Well, obviously the answer is because the banks were creating their own liquidity. And so if the banks could create all of their own liquidity and make the stock market go up in the 1990s and the early 2000s, why can they not do that today? So it's not really a matter of, is there a correlation recently? But it it goes back to, is this causation or correlation? And I think when you look at all the data in its entirety, Although we can't prove a counterfactual, I think it's tough to argue that the increase or decrease in however you measure liquidity using the Fed's balance sheet, uh, I I think it's tough to argue that that definitively is what causes 
stocks to go up or down. Do you have a comment? Hopefully that makes sense. You know, I, I understand where you're, I understand what you're saying. I'm just, just looking at what's happened over the past, you know, several years, you know, when they, for instance, the liquidity measure that we track, Fed balance sheet minus TGA minus RRP equals, you know, money actually flowing in the private system, actually real money, dollars, not, not M2, but actually real money. You know, that metric was down in 2022, stocks down. That metric was up in 2023, stocks up. What was it in 2018? Hold on. Let me go back. So I'm just, uh, give me a second. Or 2015 to 2019. Sorry. I'm just trying to find it here. Okay. So oh, that's, that's a shorter time frame. But I, I guess I, I don't have it all the way back to then, but from 2019 to today, if you track that metric, it's easy. If anybody has Bloomberg, there's actually a, a ticker for it. But if you track that metric versus the S&P 500, the R-squared correlation is 89.3%. Yeah, but you can't just go back to 2020. And you're going back three or four years. You've got – if you're going to argue that uh, QE is, you know, is a, has a causal component to the stock market going up or down or is liquidity – You've got to go back to the beginning of QE. You, you can't just go to 2020. And, and I actually pulled up a chart of that. It's a Fred chart of the reserves in the system, the, the bank reserves, which, which I think w- would be a large component of the liquidity measurement that you're using. Correct me if I'm wrong. But in August of 2014, it was $2.8 trillion. And in August of 2019, it was $1.5. But yet the stock market went straight up. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Sure. So in August 2014, the amount of bank reserves, and this is per Fred, the amount of bank reserves in the system, $2.8 trillion. And then you fast forward to, uh, call it September of 2019, and there was $1.5 trillion. So a decrease of $1.3 trillion. And yet right. a, a huge increase in the S&P 500. You know, again, it's it's when I was going back and forth with John today, he was arguing that the Fed, uh, by buying all these treasuries in March or April of 2020, somehow lowered interest rates. So let's just call this QE4, right? That this massively lowered interest rates at the long end. Uh, and this gave the government the ability to borrow more at uh, a lower interest rate, yada, yada, yada. But I said, John, well, let's go back and look at QE1, 2, and 3. And let's look at what happened to the 10-year Treasury yield. And in QE1, 2, and 3, the 10-year Treasury yield went up, not down. It went up. So understanding that that happened in 1, 2, and 3, when we get to 4, even though interest rates go down, can we definitively say that that was a result of the Fed doing whatever it was, $2 trillion in QE? No, you can't do that. In fact, if anything, I think you could argue that the Fed created an environment where rates were actually high, even though they went down, were higher than they otherwise would have been. Okay, so the, the, the furthest that metric goes back in my data is 2013, the beginning of 2013. So if you track that liquidity metric to the S&P 500, Going back to 2013, it's an 86.4% R-squared correlation. I don't know what R-squared is. You're probably a lot smarter than I do. But I can just tell you that in 2013, the amount of reserves in the system was 1.9. And the amount of reserves in the system in 2019 was 1.5. So we had fewer reserves in the system 
in 2019 than we did in 2013. Right. But bank reserves don't capture all of the money in the private system to get that. But, but, but help balance. me understand. Help me understand how you're coming to this metric. So you're using bank reserves plus what? No, no, it's not bank reserves. It's taking the Fed balance sheet. That's bank reserves, man. The aggregate Fed balance sheet. It's not. It's That's, not. It, it it is. It absolutely one hundred percent is. But when a Fed creates bank reserves, then that is goes into the reserve accounts of the banks, right? And then when let's say they buy a treasury from Janet Yellen, those reserves in the form of dollars go from the banking system down into the TGA. The exact same thing when a money market fund deposits money in reverse repo. So the bank reserves held at the Fed right now are sitting at uh, about three, about three trillion, three point four nine one. Whereas the Fed's balance sheet is sitting at seven point six trillion. Correct, because you've got currency in circulation. You've got a, a lot of right. Other so things that go into I guess it. my my point is to say that bank the, the Fed's balance sheet is bank reserves. That's just fundamentally incorrect. I'm talking, okay, outside of currency and circulation, which I don't really think adds to liquidity as far as the way you're using it, um, it it's bank reserves. It's bank but, reserves plus the TGA plus reverse repo, which at the end of the day is, is simply dollars that are liabilities of the Fed that are categorized in either bank reserves, TGA, or RRP. But I think you'd agree that if these dollars are in the TGA, then they're not circulating within the banking system. If they're in reverse repo, then they're not circulating within the banking system. Right, which is why I adjust them out. And so if you adjust right, out- so what you're doing, So what you're doing is the number that you're, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the number that you're c- coming to is bank reserves plus circ, uh, currency and circulation. Plus other items, but it's effectively money in private hands. That's what I'm calculating. But so, so and, are you going to argue that currency and circulation is going to make the stock market go up? Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. If you how much? The okay, so there's two trillion. But it's not, it's trillion, not about what I'm arguing, right? It, I'm not but, even but, arguing. But this. let's just, just think about our, what you're it, saying. There's two no, no, no. trillion in currency and circulation. Can you, can you hear me? How out, much? Please. But how how much of that currency and circulation is in the United States? Right. Just just, just hear me out. Just let me finish, and then you can you can you can debate it. But I, I don't need to argue anything, right? You just run a CORREL correlation in Excel. You track that metric that I'm giving you, which is private money and you know in the system versus the S and P 500 going back as far as the data goes back, which is 2013, and you get an 86 percent R squared correlation. All right, that's a correlation. But but to assume that there's causation there, you've got to go through the mechanics of the system and ask how, how this is happening. I mean, you can have the correlation of the Indian guy with the rain dance, but then you've got to understand the mechanics. And once you understand the mechanics, you know that that correlation isn't, doesn't have a causal effect. So I going disagree. back to the currency I disagree and because if you look at that metric, that metric was falling in all of 23, the stock market was falling. Everybody was calling for recession. And then that metric exploded when they bailed out the banks and the stock market exploded. I mean, I, I don't know how to put a chart in Twitter, but if you look at the chart, it's pretty clear. If you can, if you can predict what that liquidity metric is going to do, you can predict with you know, a high degree of certainty what the S&P 500 is going to do. Okay. So again, going back to the mechanics here, what you're, the, the, the liquidity metric that you're using is ba- the 90% of it 
is going to be bank reserves and currency in circulation. Okay, so we've already proven that bank reserves have no correlation to the S&P 500. So the only other component I, I there... I firmly disagree with that. I mean, it's not about me disagreeing. The charts but, show but that's just, not true. But I, If you yeah, chart the bank reserves versus the S&P 500, the correlation is like just under 86% as well. Gordon, 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 we already discussed this. If you go back to 2014, the amount of bank reserves in the system, I'm looking at it right now, 2.8 trillion. That went down by 1.3 trillion from 2014 to 2019. And the S&P 500 went straight up. That, that is not a correlation. That's an inverse correlation. So now I, it I'm is sitting true. here looking it at the true. chart going back to 2009. I'm looking January 2009, <laughs> bank reserves versus the S&P 500. The correlation is, what is this, 89%. And the, yeah, they're sure there's times when the correlation times, is- Times, like, like five years? What do you mean five? What, what, years, what years are you talking about? 2014 to 2019. I'm, I'm looking at the chart right here. I mean, look at it. <laughs> yeah. The I, bank I, reserves went down. Are, are you are you saying that the bank reserves didn't go down? Because I'm looking at the chart, man. Yeah, they went down slightly. 2014 slightly. to 2019. Bank reserves no, the, went from. The, the bank reserves went from 2.8 trillion to 1.9 trillion. Correct. Slightly? That's down by 50%. Yeah. And at the same time, how much did the stock market go up? It, it, it's, but that's the only period this, this correlation didn't work. The only over that. period we're talking about, we're talking about a period going back to 2009, let's say. No, so if you look many, at 2009 to 2014, as bank reserves went up, the S&P 500 went up. I, I understand that. But my it's point, literally that correlation breaks down literally and just like it broke down in literally like 2015, 16. And then resumed in like basically 2018. No, no, it absolutely didn't. But for a five, but what we're doing is we're talking about a 15 year period. And you're talking about for 10 of these years, there was a correlation. And for five of this, there's an inverse correlation. That's incorrect. I, I'm not, not looking at the chart. Dude. That's just not correct. <laughs> okay. Gordon, anyone that's on this live stream right now, just don't, you don't have to take either of our words on it. This stuff is very easy to look up. All you have to do is look at a chart, a Fred chart, of the reserves of depository institutions and then just match that up with a chart of the S&P 500. Right. And then that's, that's you can determine... People should just look at the chart. Like, don't listen right. to me and then or you. you. Yes. Please, I would encourage them to do that. And if you can somehow say that there's a, a positive correlation between that five-year period, then good on you. Good on you. So the correlation of bank reserves to the S&P 500, 2000... And again, Gordon, let, let's go through the mechanics. So help me understand what a bank can do with additional reserves that would lead them to creating the liquidity needed to make the stock market go up. George, let, let me explain this to you. So, no, but please, let's, let's get back to the mechanics. Yeah, yeah I'm going to explain the mechanics. Not, we're just Here, here's why bank Indian reserves affect the stock market. Let me explain. Sure. So as sure. bank reserves go up, you can track, you can go and look at margin, basically margin, um, margin lent out by banks. So effectively, okay. right, margin lent buy, sell, et cetera, stocks. And as the, if you look at the bank reserves, as bank reserves go up, the margin that banks lend out to buy, sell, short, whatever stocks to trade in the stock market goes up and goes down. So there's a very okay. high correlation between bank reserves 
and margin lent out effectively to people for people to gamble in the stock market. Okay, that doesn't tell me about the mechanics. Let's get into the mechanics. Well, no, that is please. the mechanics, right? Because if bank reserves no, go up, banks are lending out more money effectively on margin to buy and sell stocks and vice versa. As they lend out Maybe more money to buy and sell stocks, stocks go up. As they lend out less right. money to buy and sell okay. stocks, stocks go down. That That's effectively the mechanics. Okay. That's, okay, Maybe we have a different version of mechanics. What you're talking about is a correlation. What I'm talking about is please explain to me how the banks have additional ability to lend with more bank reserves. If you have more assets, you have more money to lend and vice versa. The banks create their own assets. How could they do this prior to 2008, Gordon, when they didn't use reserves? I I don't understand how this isn't clear. Like I'm, I'm trying to be as simple as possible. No, if, but, but If but you as a, not, as a bank have more avoiding, assets, you have more money to lend. If you have less assets, you have less money to lend. If you track margin accounts, or I'm sorry, margin outstanding, Versus bank reserves, like again, the correlation there is like over ninety percent. So as reserves okay, so, fall, banks are lending less for people to gamble in the stock market, and vice versa. Okay, so I think the problem here is you might be under the assumption that banks are actually lending out reserves. No, that's that 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 has nothing to do with it. Let's let's just again focus on the facts. If you look at margin outstanding, which the okay. Nasdaq reports on a monthly basis, okay, and so you we're track going back that to against. On a monthly basis, okay. The correlation between those two data points is over ninety percent. Got it. Right. That that's over, and that's going back to like I think it's like two thousand eight. So my Got point it. is, as bank reserves go up, if those correlations hold, banks will lend out more money for people to go speculate in the stock market and vice versa. But but okay. So again, I think we're going around in circles here because I'm not hearing anything about the plumbing of the system. Now, maybe we have a different definition of that, but what you're telling me is that if banks have more bank reserves, that liabilities of the Fed, that they are able to do things that they otherwise would not be able to do. So if JP Morgan has some guy that's uh, wanting to borrow $10 billion and their fees are going to be, let's say, $500 million, that JP Morgan is going to tell that guy, Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. We can't do this because we just don't have enough bank reserves. If the Fed would only do a little bit more QE, and if the Fed would only buy these treasuries that we have on our balance sheet, then we could go ahead and give you the loan and you could buy all those stocks that you want to buy. But we're not going to be able to do that until the Fed buys these treasuries from us. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, that's like a, a theoretical. Like, I, I'm just. That's not a theoretical. That, that's how the system works, Gordon. No, I'm, I'm just saying, all, again, all I'm saying is I'm looking at how these items are correlated. I understand, <laughs> right? but that's not the mechanics. Yeah, we, I mean, we... You're <laughs> looking at the Indian rain dance, and you're telling me that there's been a strong correlation over the last five years. And I'm saying, okay, that's great. I get it. There's a correlation. Now, let's go over the science and the mechanics behind how that works to determine if that correlation has some sort of causal effect. I just think it's, it, and I'll leave it here because I don't, I don't want to argue too much, but I just think it's, I wouldn't say disingenuous, but I would say dangerous to tell people that if that liquidity metric goes up, Fed balance sheet minus RRP minus PGA, if that metric goes up, it has no impact on stocks. I think that's extremely no, dangerous no, no. because I'm not that, it doesn't have that any impact thought on has stuff. proven incorrect. I'm saying mechanically, it has no impact whatsoever. 
And if you're disputing that, I think what you're I think saying that's is that's extremely dangerous. wrong. And I'll leave it there. It, we it, can it, agree to disagree. Well, well, when you say agree to disagree, I mean, just look at what's happened the past few years. I mean, but look at the mechanic. See, Gordon, the problem here is you don't understand the mechanics. Let, let's just call a spade a spade. I mean, I'm trying to be nice, but you don't understand the plumbing. You really don't. You're trying. That's why you're trying to talk around it. And you're not giving me any hard details. You're just going back to this correlation what, what, thing. What do you want me to give you? What are you asking? I want you to tell me specifically, mechanically, how the banks are able to do things with more reserves. How are they able to do more things with three trillion in reserves compared to two point five trillion? Just make how how does that increase their balance sheet capacity above and beyond? Just having a treasury on their balance sheet. What is the difference if a if a bank has a hundred million in treasuries? What can they not do that they can do with a hundred billion in bank reserves? That's what I want you to tell me. I thought I explained that. If a bank has more assets, they can lend out more money. Right, is that, a treasury not an asset? I I I mean reserves, treasuries, assets. You're right. So so if if they have a treasury asset on their balance sheet, and that is replaced by a bank reserve asset, what is the difference with the balance sheet capacity? What is the ability, how can they lend more with a bank reserve asset than they can with a treasury asset? That's not the, that's not the question here, though. What I'm saying that, is that is absolutely the increasing. question. I'm not saying they're, they're, they're transferring assets for other assets. I'm saying with higher assets, they will lend more. And but, vice but, let's, but what do they get with those higher assets? Here's here's something to consider. Gordon, I'll leave it here. Gordon, they get higher liabilities. No, no, no. Let, let, let me let me they say get this. more liabilities. So you 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 remember right? Janet Yellen's, Janet Yellen's Treasury General account balance went from like seven hundred and fifty billion to fifty billion. Right? It fell by seven hundred billion. Right? And then she said, "I'm going to build it back up to seven hundred billion, seven hundred fifty billion. So she was going to issue effectively a ton of debt. Right? Historically, before QE Infinity. That debt would be monetized by banks. So as the TGA went up, bank reserves would fall, right? The reason that didn't happen this time is because from 2020 to 2022, the Fed did excess QE, which was stored in the reverse repo account. If you look at the RRP prior to 2020, it was effectively zero. It, it wasn't, but it was, it was very low forever. It was like almost a straight line, and then it okay. shot up. Yeah. So when you say the Fed doesn't matter, I disagree because the Fed RRP money monetized Yellen's recent bond deluge. It didn't come out of the uh, bank reserves. Thus, you didn't have the decline in risk assets because reserves stayed high. So to say the Fed doesn't matter, I think basically spits in the face of what we've seen in reality. I, that's all I'm saying. Thank you. Right, I appreciate the comments, Gordon. I appreciate you being a good sport. Uh, obviously, we have different views. But uh, the main thing here is that hopefully uh, we're getting people to, to think and come to their own conclusions and look at those charts. Uh, and regardless of who people think is right or wrong, if we get people actually thinking and talking about this stuff, that's a big win. So thank you very much. All right. So now we've got Eric. All right, Eric, you're up. Uh, thank you very much. I'm from the Netherlands and I'm an, okay. I'm an actuary. Uh, uh, I was, uh, uh, I'm a little bit difficult in English, but I try to. And I was thinking there are no assets 
they are, how do you say that? Uh, money is fake money nowadays. There are not, not any assets right. bank, banking up that. What, what's your opinion about that? Before there was the gold well, standard. Right. And now it's only uh, I, printing I, yeah. money. Okay. So I think what you're referring to is that what we trade back and forth, the majority of what we trade back and forth now are simply commercial bank liabilities that are denominated in dollars. Yep. Is that your point? Yeah. That the dollar is, is worthless because it is not backed up with, with gold standard. You're just printing, and we are also in Europe, we are just printing money for fun. Okay. That, that's, that's my discussion point to you all. Uh, thank you very much that I'm invited to speak. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for your comments, Eric. And um, I, I totally get where you're coming from. One of the, some of the research that I've done is going back to the 1800s. I like going back to that time, uh, especially the late 1800s, because we were on the gold standard back yep. then. And I, I like comparing the... M2 money supply uh, during the gold standard to what we've seen, not just with fiat currency, but during the, we'll call it the QE standard from 2008 to, let's just say, 2023. So if you take that 15-year time span from 2008 to 2023, and then you go back to 19, excuse me, 1880 to 1895, you see that the M2 money supply increased by the exact same amount. Yep. No difference whatsoever. So what that tells you is that either the gold standard was not a constraint on banks at all as far as creating more currency units or or the fiat standard doesn't need to be constrained. Now, I I, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. So where I come down is you know, just kind of like the thesis or the main theme of everything that I'm saying here. I don't think the gold standard or gold uh, constrained banks at all during the gold standard, just like I don't think bank reserves they're, they're, the banks Exactly. Today. Exactly. That was my following question. Do you think that we need a new bank gold standard or not? This is a great question because it, it also involves fractional reserve banking versus full reserve banking, right? Because if we would have had full reserve banking during the gold standard, then obviously the banks could not have created as many banknotes or loans or whatever. There would have been a constraint. Yeah, I, I, I would say it. Sorry to interrupt you. I would pronounce it as fake money, but go on. Yeah. So the, there, the bottom line is there would have been a constraint. Yep. Now, would that have been a good thing? Um, I don't know. And then how would you have implemented that constraint if not by the government putting a gun to your head and saying that you can't do this? That's a, that's a, I, that's so, a good so, question. So, Can I have a discussion? So me as sorry. A liber- sorry. Yeah, me as a libertarian, I don't want the government involved. Yeah. So if the free market is going to choose fractional reserve lending, then let them choose fractional reserve lending. And if the bank's make bad loans, then they go bust, then they go bust. And if people lose money as a result, well, that's, we just live and learn. Can I, can I, if, if there's demand for full reserve banks, then the free market will produce those full reserve banks. And then maybe we'll be better off as a result. But I'm, you know, if what we saw with free banking 
is that that's what the free market chose over and over and over and over again was this fraction reserve stuff. Another thing that I'd say, maybe some food for thought, Eric, and I, I had, I'm not saying this as this is my conclusion or this is my opinion or anything like that, but I have given, I've wrestled with this quite yep. a bit that when you increase the money supply by creating more gold, let's say, or more green pieces of paper, you know, like we were talking about with, uh, with Gordon and the currency and circulation, what you're doing is you're creating money supply that is there forever, right? So if I lend you a gold coin, that has not increased the amount of money supply. And if you pay back that gold coin, that has not decreased the money supply. But with a bank lending, it's the opposite, right? So if a bank is lending and creating currency units out of thin air, then the M2 money supply went up or the money supply. And if you pay that back the next day, then M2 or the money supply went down by the same amount. So it's it's interesting to have a system where we're just trading gold coins around compared to, let's say, a system where there was no base money. It was just all broad money. Can I pick your mind a little bit? Well, uh, let me finish. Let me finish. No, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, because the punchline there is that if we had a system that was completely broad money, then the money supply, theoretically, would fluctuate up and down with productivity. And that might be, and I'm not saying that it is, but I think you could see how maybe, maybe in a theoretical world, that would even be superior to trading gold coins back and forth that yep. can't really fluctuate up and down with the levels of productivity. That, that, that's exactly the point I was trying to trick you on. What if, just what if, there was a gold standard? What was your economic perspective? If there was a dollar-gold connection, yeah. what's your idea about that? Well, I just think it would look exactly like the 1800s. Me, as far as the, the banking, I think we'd have reserve or fractional reserve banking. I, I think, especially if we got the government out of the way, just had free bank. I think it would look identical to what we saw in the late 1800s. Yep. But we could not pay for everything then, huh? because we do not have free money then. Well, we we did because we had fractional reserve banking. Remember, again, the, the, the amount of yep. currency that's the M2, if you want to call that money, and I know I'm using that term loosely, but uh, it increased by the exact same amount as it has from 2018 to 2023, um, or excuse me, 2008, 2008 to 2023. So again, that, that gold standard, in my opinion, did not constrain the banking system at all. So I, I'm not I, agreeing I with you. I'm not because then you do not have fractional banking or not. But that's a different question, right? Because yeah. what we saw is a gold standard with fractional reserve lending. We yeah. have never seen a gold standard with full reserve. Yeah. Uh, now, if we had a gold standard with full reserve, then I totally, totally agree with you that that would absolutely constrain the banking system. Yeah. Is is uh, can I have another question too? Maybe I take too much space, but yeah, uh, one more question, Eric, and then we'll. Bring yeah, that's that, that that's okay. What's your opinion about two thousand and eight? Well, the total uh, collapse uh, of the banking system. That's that for the other uh, speakers. Well, I'm glad you 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 put it that way 
because most people, when they talk about 2008 or 2009, would talk about it in terms of a, of a, a real estate crash. Yep. When in, in reality, I mean, that had to do with it, of course, because that decreased the amount of collateral in the system in the form of mortgage-backed securities. But that really what it did is it increased risk in the banking yep. system. And, uh, you know, money dried up or liquidity dried up. And uh, you had a, a global financial crisis because of the interconnectivity of yep. the global monetary system. And um, we could be seeing the exact same thing. Um you know, with this crisis that we're dealing with in 2023 and now seems is rearing its ugly head again because the Fed did not solve the problem. Um, it's rearing its ugly head again, maybe in 2024. And and keep in mind, this is what's going on with the commercial banks, which I think could bleed over, uh, bleed uh, into the yep. banking system at large. This is happening without a recession. Yeah. But but you know, what, what sorry, do I have another sorry? All these things, so you could see how the risk could potentially increase. So that that's my that's my view, is that uh, you know we had a, a financial crisis, and if you look at what caused it um, back then, uh, we have similar conditions today. Not saying it's going to happen again, but you could argue that a lot of the, there's a lot of parallels. Okay, my final statement, and thank you very much for the host that I can speak. Sure. My belief is that the 2008 financial crisis is solved with another loan crisis that's happening right now. But that's my final statement, and I leave it to the others. Thank you very much, host, that I can speak for you. Thanks for your comments, Eric. I put my mic out, and I'm listening to the others. Okay. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options, Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. All right, so we've got uh, Dead Hedge. You're up. Hey, George. Uh, big fan. Um, Thanks. I was wondering, uh, because so we have these bank reserves and we have uh, treasuries or, or bonds. Um, I, I am leaning more in the direction that it's actually the bonds that are the base money and that creates like the foundation for new credit credit growth um yeah. and these reserves they are really pissing me off because i cannot see any use for them except for they might be keeping the banks afloat due to some revaluing or some stuff like that but they also serve as the checking account for the for the government 
So they have some sort of mechanical relevance there. Yeah, so on that note, keep in mind that back in 2008, that's when Ben Bernanke asked whoever, Paulson, uh, to start depositing money in the TGA. The TGA existed, but it was just really never used. And what was used are accounts called TTNL accounts. Yeah. And these are liabilities of the commercial banking system. So the, the TGA, or Janet Yellen, the Treasury can be paid without the TGA. So they could be paid, uh, said another way, they can be paid in broad money just as easily as they can be paid in base money. But yes, but do they still use these uh, TTL accounts? I think though, when you pay your taxes, I think that it goes into one of those accounts first, and then it gets directly deposited into the TGA. That's the way I understand it. Yeah. But um, if we said tomorrow, if we told Janet Yellen that she was no longer able uh, to accept bank reserves or you know liabilities of the Fed, maybe said another way, uh, she would have no problem. Uh, because she would just leave the, uh, the 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 money, the broad money, in those accounts that are liabilities of the commercial banking system, and then yeah. just go ahead and write the checks from those accounts. But but do you think that they did it that way to kind of like air gap uh, the the money of the government away from the banking system? Yeah, exactly. That's that's why they, it's explicitly why they did it. In fact, the, the, the Fed, I've read uh, articles, I've done videos, uh, and they say this, that, that Ben Bernanke was concerned that the additional reserves would cause maybe not hyperinflation, but massive amounts of consumer price inflation, maybe something like the 1970s. And so what he wanted to do is, is sterilize the reserves, if you will. Yeah. So uh, he asked uh, whomever the Treasury was at the time, say, hey, buddy, if you do me a favor, just when you have money deposited in these TTNL accounts, just bring them over into the TGA because he knew that that would bring reserves out of the banking system and down into the TGA. So the Fed's balance sheet doesn't change, but the composition of it changes. And he thought that would be a way to do QE while at the same time not – uh, allowing the banks to have all these additional reserves that he thought would likely cause significant com consumer price inflation. Why did he think that? Because he was making the same mistake that almost everybody makes. And he thought that the banks actually need reserves to lend. Yeah. And therefore, if you created more reserves, you'd create more lending. And what we found out is that's just simply not true. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm thinking about like reserves uh, versus uh, treasuries. You have this mechanic of uh, rehypothecation and and uh, well, it's not just like that. A, you just got repo. You got repo. So let's if you've got a tra and this is kind of the point that I was trying to make uh, with with Gordon earlier yeah. is if a bank has a treasury on their balance sheet. Um, let's just say that they do a loan, a mortgage for $500,000. So now all of a sudden you've created a deposit liability, but you've also created a loan. So that's when I say that banks create their own assets and liabilities, that's what I'm talking about, right? And so they've just created their a new asset for themselves, and they've also created a new loan. Now, keep in mind that they could have created that loan lending cash to another bank. Yeah. And then that bank would have liquidity just like they have Bank reserves, exact same thing. But the problem that that bank, the, the original bank, is going to come into is not creating the loan. They can do that infinitely, infinitely. 
but when they have to transfer that commercial liability to another bank. How do they settle? Because they're transferring a liability, but then they would have to also transfer some sort of asset, or would they? What if the bank that received the commercial liability just gave them a loan, the sending bank, or maybe just an IOU? Said, oh yeah, we'll take this million dollar deposit liability from you, and then you can just pay us later. We'll just go ahead and settle up at the end of the month, and um, then at the end of the month, and then at the end of the month, then then uh, another bank, let's say that's involved, has uh, cash from the sending bank, and they can say, oh, you know, at the end of the, just go ahead and grab the cash from this other bank. So there's no reserves that are involved here. It's just an extension of credit from one bank to the next bank to the corresponding bank to the no, to the uh, nostro vostro accounts, the corresponding banking relationships. It's all handled within this network. And let's just assume for a moment that you did need uh, cash and you didn't have uh, this relationship with all these other banks. Great. Then go ahead and take that treasury and repo it. And if you repo that treasury, now all of a sudden you've got the cash that you can go ahead and settle with until which time that you can get cash from somewhere else. And then you can go ahead and pay back that repo loan. So so the, the, the bottom line is a treasury and a bank reserve is identical. It's identical in the sense that all it is is a cash equivalent. It's no. a claim on cash. That's that's really at the I don't end of think the day. Reserves and, I don't think reserves and uh, treasuries are uh, uh, equal. I think there's yeah, a I lot there's more. Probably, there's a yeah, lot there's, more utility in the treasury. Right. Right. I, I, and I, I would agree because now we're getting into Jeff's territory. Yeah. Uh, you know Snyder. And, yeah. um, you know, he obviously knows way more about that stuff than I do. But even even if there's not uh, more utility in the form of a treasury, um, it, it has no difference whatsoever uh, for a bank and their ability to not only create loans, but send deposit liabilities to other banks. I mean, you even look at Silicon Valley Bank, right? And they had all of these treasuries, right? Well, Sure, they took a haircut on those treasuries. Maybe they went down in value by, let's say, 70%. But why couldn't they have taken those treasuries and just repoed them and gotten the cash? Why didn't they do that? Or why didn't they just go to the discount window, for heaven's sakes? <laughs> why, why, why didn't they repo all those treasuries that, as you point out, are, are fantastic collateral? Well, one of two reasons. Number one is because no business wanted to touch them with a 10-foot pole. And the repo rate was would have been too punitive, right? Or uh, they took such a massive haircut on the treasuries and the, they had the liability side of their balance sheet fleeing. So even if they would have got, let's just say, 70 cents on the dollar, it would not have been enough to go ahead and take care of these fleeing deposit liabilities and been able to settle up. But even if that was the case, if the risk was the same in the overall system, then you would have had another bank come in. And buy them at let's just say fifty cents on the dollar. Yeah. So yeah, point well made. And um, uh, I I just have one more question. Um, yeah. Quick, have you seen that uh, YouTube movie uh, from like eight years ago uh, where there are seems like there are professional uh, finance people talking about the import the importance of collateral in the monetary system. And there's this Indian guy, he talks about collateral velocity and how it yeah. went down after 2008. 
and he right. talks about how how good collateral can help bad collateral move around and stuff like that. Yep, that's right. Yeah, it, it's it's just it's um, you know, there. I always see this is why for me it goes back to risk because to your point, they can rehypothecate collateral, or it's just like fractional reserve lending on collateral, and and what's the limit on that? Well, is it one to two or is it one to thirty? Well, I, I think it boils down to risk at the end of the day. So if the risk is very, very low, I think we we have almost unlimited collateral because you're going to be able to rehypothecate that one piece of collateral, let's say 40, 50 times. There's there's basically a collateral multiplier, right? But if risk is very, very high, then that multiplier is going to go down to one. And 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 people are going to demand more collateral to begin with. And that's when, or one of the arguments that I would give for the low probability that the government is going to have a hard time funding their deficits, let's just say over the next three years. Because if you believe that that's true, then, then you have to also believe that somehow the global economy won't go through a recession, which would increase the risk which would actually decrease the collateral multiplier at the same time when the federal government is, is increasing the amount of collateral, meaning treasuries, right? Yeah. So is the, is the federal, and I know this sounds completely perverse to say, but it's, it is what it is. We don't have to like it. It's, can the federal government create enough of a deficit? <laughs> can they create enough supply of these treasuries to make up for the collateral multiplier going down, assuming that the amount of risk goes up. It, it, I don't know the answer, but it's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, it's Triffin's dilemma again. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, well, thanks George. a lot for your comments. Yeah. Okay. We've got that sly dog is up. Okay. So, protege, you're up. How's it going, George? Listen to the uh, Great. Uh, podcast or channel just about every day. I'm well, still you. kind of struggling to comprehend everything because it's like such a complex topic, but okay. I do. And this, so, you know, I, I don't fully understand, but I do remember you saying one thing about taxation and money being, uh, raked in and destroyed. Can you like, uh, uh, further explain that? Sure. So this, uh, goes back to kind of how the MMT guys describe it. And there's a lot of things that, you know, when they describe the system, I think they describe it pretty well. I don't agree with everything, but it's just their conclusions and their prescriptions that I, that I really uh, disagree with. <laughs> but the, their argument here in, in the way I would describe it is when you, uh, let's see, oh, protege, I thought you had your first name there. Sorry. When you pay your taxes, let's just assume that you do that with the money that you have in your savings account. All right. So let's just say that you've got a thousand dollars in your savings account and you owe $1,000 to the IRS. So what happens is that savings is included in M1 and therefore it's included in M2, uh, which would be part of the broad money supply. So what happens when you send in your check uh, is your account balance goes from a thousand down to zero, right? And then what th through the process of the TTNL and all these things, what ends up happening is the TGA or the Treasury actually gets paid 
by the reserves from the banks going down into the TGA. So $1,000 worth of bank reserves will go from the reserve account, let's just say of your bank, down into the TGA. So they're giving up a $1,000 asset, but what are they doing to your bank account balance? They're taking it from 1000 down to zero. So they no longer have that liability. So on net balance for the bank, it's it's pretty much all the same. But what has happened is M2 money supply has gone down by a thousand bucks because there was a thousand in your account. Now there's zero. So that's where the uh, where I would say that they have quote unquote destroyed money because they have lowered the amount of M2 money supply. Now, but of course, what happens is when Janet Yellen spends the money, then that M2 money supply is going to go right back to where it was before. But the key difference, and I think one of the main reasons we had such significant consumer price inflation in uh, 2021, it wasn't necessarily because of M2 money supply increasing, although I thought that I think that had something to do with it. But I think it was more so the composition of M2 money supply changing and going from low velocity to high velocity. So going back to your example or the example I just gave you, when your $1,000 was in a savings account, it was very low velocity, right? It was By definition, it's in a savings account. So that money, you're not using that to pay rent. You're not using that to, uh, to buy clothes or, or, or basically those currency units are not out chasing goods and services. But what happens is when they're destroyed, you know, they go into the TJ, and then when they're created again by Janet Yellen spending them back into the economy, they most likely, especially the way the government spent money in 2020, 2021, 2022, is they probably went to stimmy checks or PPPs or, or well, the PPP was a guarantee, but let's just say stimmy checks. So what happened is they that M2 money supply, although on net balance didn't change, it went from savings to checking. Okay. Well, if it's in checking, it's going to have a lot higher velocity. People are going to use that to go on vacation. They're going to use it to pay their rent. They're going to do all these things where you had it in savings, very low velocity. So I think that's one of the reasons why uh, we had such significant consumer price inflation uh, was a result of that velocity, which leads to a lot of other questions and, and thought experiments you know, if we have the government in the future continue with all these massive deficits, even if it's not being monetized by the Fed, and even if M2 money supply doesn't change, uh, you know, all else being equal to banking system, uh, will that be inflationary? Uh, maybe, maybe, I'm not saying that it is, but it could be if it changes velocity by taking trillions of dollars out of savings and putting it into checking accounts. Okay, and we're talking about because people always say, well, they're taking our tax dollars and they're giving it to whomever or doing this and doing that. But in reality, tax, uh, federal tax, uh, federal uh, income tax is actually being taken and destroyed. If you want to get super technical, I mean, they're taking your tax dollars into their account. So it's no longer circulating in M2. And then they're spending it back into the economy where it goes back into M2. So if you want to look at that as they're taking your tax dollars and spending it, or if you want to get super, super technical about it, like the MMTers, and say that, well, since M2 is going down, that money is being destroyed. And then when the Treasury writes that check, it's being created. 
we're, we're, we're it's, it's six or one half dozen. <laughs> it's really the exact same thing round trip. All right. And another question I had, I don't want to take too much time. I was just sitting here at work watching one of your videos here. The, I think the video you released about three hours ago when you said, well, the banks don't want to take a loss on a loan. You know what I mean? Well, if a bank can create money uh, at its own will, how on earth does it like, you know, take a loss? I mean, don't they just say, oh, well, it was a loss or oh, we're not making any money off of it. But was it truly a loss if you have the ability to just create money? Yeah, because it impacts their equity. It impacts their ability to borrow. So this is a great question, by the way. So let's think this through. When I say, and I should be more clear about this, uh, this is my fault. When I say the banks create their own money, what I'm really saying is they're creating their own credit, which can be used as money, right? Because they're creating, um, the, the banking system as a whole creates as much money as it really wants to create by lending it to non-banks, but also by lending it to other banks. But they can't, they, they can't create money for themselves. You see, so going back to Silicon Valley Bank, they needed money, <laughs> fraud money, base money, doesn't matter. They needed money. And if they could have created their own dollar bills or their own, uh, they could create broad money, but that that's that wouldn't have been able, that wouldn't have done them any good as far as the settlement process. But what could have happened is JP Morgan, even if they didn't have any bank reserves or anything like that, they could have simply just extended credit to Silicon Valley Bank or given them broad money, which JP Morgan or a bank created by lending it into existence. And Silicon Valley Bank would have been able to use that current the, that those dollars to settle those transactions. You see? So when I'm saying the bank that banks create their own money, I'm saying the banking system creates its own money by either lending it to a non-bank, which we all know that. We all know that. But what we forget is that banks create money by lending money to other banks as well. You see? So so does that make a little bit more sense? And, and I'm, I apologize because I, I say that kind of flippantly, and I, I should be more specific about that. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, and I was going to ask, you know, if you could uh, – I know you have two channels, the George Gaiman channel and the uh, Rebel Capitalist channel. Yeah. But, um, if you could like kind of just like uh, I don't know how to word this, but, you know, just like kind of uh, organize or create playlist in the George Gammon channel, because there's so much information that you're teaching us. You know what I mean? But then the yeah. thing is, what happens is I got to go through like 70 videos just to figure out which video I want to watch to learn about this specific subject that you touched on in the past. You know, it's a great uh, suggestion. It's yeah. a great suggestion, and I, I, I would love to do that, um, and hopefully we'll do that in the future. But right now, it's just simply a matter of time. Okay. It's just yeah. a matter of time. I, I'm trying – like today, I worked on a whiteboard video. Yesterday, I worked on a whiteboard video, and I'm doing that in addition to trying to do these live streams to keep people kind of up to date as, 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 what's going, as to what's going on in the system, and it, it's just – you know, I've got a, a, a five or six people helping me out with the channel, but e even with that, 
you know, I, I, for better or worse, I, I create an astronomical amount of content (laughs) (laughs) and I, I, I probably should create a lot less and organize it better, but it's just, you know, when I get the urge to talk about something in this space, this is a good example. I just, I just want to get it off my chest and I, I just want to talk about it. And that's what really motivates me. And at the end of the day, that's why I do this. So that's why that's a priority. Yeah, and uh, I love the channel. Also, are you still doing the whole T-Bell and chill thing? Because, you know, I was doing, I'm doing that. But then at the same time, I'm looking at, you know, SPY or QQQ. And I'm like, man, I'm starting to feel like I'm missing out here. But then, you know, with my luck, the minute I just decide to go all in, that's when everything goes downhill. Right. But but why is that? So let's analyze this a little bit. The reason why when you, based on your luck, when you buy something, a lot of times it goes downhill is because you're not buying something that's cheap. You're buying something that's expensive. And the reason you're buying something that's expensive is because you think it's going to go up in price. Or the reason you sell something that's cheap or expensive or whatever is because you think it's going to go down in price. So my point there is what I would suggest, and I can't give you any investing advice, but what I do or what I try to do is start by asking the question, is it cheap or is it expensive? Instead of trying to answer the question, is the price going to go up or down? Yeah. Well, and, I, if, and if I think something's cheap, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to buy it or at least have the discipline to buy it. And if I think something's expensive, then I'm either not going to buy it or I'm going to sell it. Even, even if I think the price is going to continue to go up, if it's expensive, or even if I think the price is going to continue to go down, if it's cheap. If you just buy low, sell high, and forget about the price direction, um, that has been a winning strategy for me since I retired in 2012. Yeah, but nothing's cheap except commodities, and it's like we're approaching like super bubble territory when it comes to tech. And it's so like and chill. Yeah, and the thing is, like, so, uh, but that's the point, right? Like so you keep and chill. Said, Jim Bianco said, "Is it going to go up another thousand percent, or is it going to go down?" And it's like, well, I don't. And then they start talking about this soft landing thing, you know. And I'm pretty young, so it's like I don't want to miss my opportunity to, you know, hop in SPY or QQQ while it's still, you know, at four hundred and five hundred bucks. You know, next thing you know, it's at nine hundred bucks, and I was thinking, like, oh man, we were we were going to see like a great de- depression two point and I'm sitting here buying the GDX, and it's still at twenty eight, twenty nine bucks where it was two, three years ago. Right. So, have you ever played blackjack? I have. Okay, cool. Is 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 the objective to win every single hand, or is the objective just to have more money? at the end of the night more money at the end of the night i agree i agree so the reason why very few people have more money at the end of the night the reason why most people have less money at the end of the night is because the edge is in the favor of the house the the house has a mathematical edge right now if you could turn that mathematical edge in your favor then the probability is very high. Although you might lose some hands, you might win some hands, all these things. The probability is high that at the end of the night, you will have more money in your pocket than you started with, right? So I I would try to take that same philosophy 
and apply it to investing, right? So what we're trying to do is not win every single hand, or we're not trying to take advantage of every single gain in the NASDAQ or the FANG stocks or whatever it is. What we're trying to do is have a mathematical edge. That's it. That's it. Because we know that if we have a mathematical edge, if we do this long enough, then we're going to come out ahead. We're going to be a winner, especially if, you have, if you're a young guy like, like you are and you have a mathematical edge over a long period of time. You're going, to be, you're going to be smelling like roses after 20 or 30 years. Just ask Warren Buffett, right? So uh, then the question becomes, okay, how do I have a mathematical edge? How do I get that? We just, I just gave you the answer. You buy low, sell high. That's your edge over the market because 99% of the market is just trying to predict whether prices are going up or down. That, that's all they're doing, 99% of retail. So if you ignore that and you just buy low and sell high, that's going to give you an edge over everyone else that you're competing with. And if you have that mathematical edge and you maintain it over a long period of time, you're good to go. All right. Well, uh, thank you. And if anyone else has a question or comment, feel free to – okay, well, while we're waiting for that, let's go over to John. I guess we'll go back to you, my friend, by default. Oh, whoops. Go ahead. Yeah, it's strange that these guys aren't talking. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say it seems like Eric and uh, Anissa Haji are kind of like uh, changing their forward outlook, you know, on the energy markets, you know. Um, but uh, I don't know what, 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 what do you think about this whole energy crisis? And do you think, you know, I mean, energy's not cheap, but it's not expensive. What, 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 what's your, uh, opinions? Yeah. I mean, I think we're in a long-term super cycle. That's for sure. Usually, I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that oil bottomed out in uh, April of 2020 when it got to negative $38 a barrel. And, uh, Usually these super cycles last 10, 15 years, something like that. So my base case is just obviously no certainties, only probabilities, is that we'll be in this super cycle till 2030, if not 2035. Now, that doesn't mean that these prices go up in a straight line. They never, ever, ever do. It's always volatility and always up, down, up, down. Um, so that's my overall kind of long-term macro view in the commodity space. So what I'm doing right now is just waiting for an opportunity to buy these things when they're cheap. So let's use oil as an example. Oil, and, and now inflation has gone up, so it's changed a bit. But back when I uh, was buying it in 2020, this is March, and I wasn't buying oil, I was buying the producers to be clear. But I was using oil uh, as a proxy for the producers being cheap. So if you looked at a long-term chart adjusted for inflation, you saw that when oil gets under 30 a barrel, it becomes pretty damn cheap. And over 80, 85, pretty expensive. And then just mean reverts. Just mean reverts, mean reverts, mean reverts. Which makes sense with in the commodity space because the cure for high prices are high prices and cure for low prices are low prices. So anything under 30, and, and I'm a buyer. So when it was 25 going down to 20, you guys remember that in March, I, I was buying these, these oil producers. Uh, it was hard. Because I thought oil was still going to go down. I thought, the, who knows, at a time there, we all thought the world was coming to an end. But I was still in there buying, even though I thought the prices were going to go a lot lower. And then when it got to 80, 85, I started selling, even though I thought the prices were going to go higher. So now I'm just kind of waiting for the same opportunity. 
understanding that my long-term view is that prices will be a lot higher in 2030 than they are today. So I don't think it's $30 anymore, especially if you look at a chart. Now it's around 40 or 45 And that sounds crazy, but even Gunlock the other day, I was listening to him, and his price target for oil this year is around $40 a barrel. So I can tell you that if oil gets down to 40 a barrel in nominal terms, I'm going to be ba- – I'm, I'm backing up the brinks on that. And what I would do is I would take those treasuries, these T-bills that I have, that I'm earning, you know, let's say 5.5%. I'd sell them and take that liquidity and put it into something that I think is going to give me a better return, even a risk-adjusted return, over the long run. But I'm not going to chase it. I'm not going to get anxious and I'm not going to have FOMO and all these things. I'm going to wait for the price or the market to come to me. And then I'm going to go ahead and take action. And I think that if the yield curve is correct, and if we do get a recession in 2024, we get unemployment going up, we have demand coming down for commodities, and this is what we see pretty much every single cycle, that prices of commodities come down uh, significantly. So now if that doesn't play out, yeah, I I miss out. But I'm just trying to play the probability game and go back to just attempting to have that mathematical edge. And it all starts, quite frankly, by being patient. I, I always, I probably say this every single live stream. My favorite investor is Jim Rogers. And the very first interview that I read with Jim Rogers was in the original Market Wizards book. I'm sure most of you on this stream right now have, have read that book. And it's fantastic. If you haven't, you, you got to do it. But in this interview with Jack Schweiger, Jim Rogers, it, it, Jack was trying to get all these strategies out of Jim. And as you guys know, Jim has a just a brilliant way of, of saying things that are very, very profound in the simplest terms possible. And one of the reasons Jim is one of my favorite investors is because he reminds me of my father. My father was identical in the way that he communicated. So Jim said, look, all I do is sit in my chair and do nothing. Nothing. Zero. It could be two years and I won't do anything. And I just wait for a big pile of money to show up in the corner. And when I see it, I just go pick it up. Then I go back to my chair and I do nothing. Nothing until I see another big pile of money sitting in the corner. So oil at negative $28 a barrel, that is a great example of a big pile of money sitting in the corner just waiting for someone to pick it up. But you see, the trick is, although that concept concept is simple, it's not easy. So looking back in retrospect, every single person on this call right now knows that negative $28 a barrel for oil is a big pile of money sitting in the corner. But how many of you, you don't have to answer this, but in your head, how many of you bought oil back in April of 2020? I would argue probably very few of you did. Why? Because for obvious reasons, we thought oil was going lower. We thought the world was coming to an end. We thought we were going into a deflationary depression that would make the 1930s look like a picnic. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge to have the mental discipline to buy low and sell high. Yeah, I understand for sure. Okay, so we've got Jeff, Jeff Deist, the legendary Jeff Deist. What's up, my friend? Hey, good evening, George. Uh, quick question. Uh, going back to this idea, you know, does the Fed really matter? 
Yeah. And do bank reserves, commercial bank reserves, park at the Fed really matter? Yeah. Um, you know, in 2007, when the sky was falling, Ben Bernanke told all of us, you know, we have to buy these bank assets. Some of them were mortgage-backed securities, but a lot of them were just old-fashioned treasuries in exchange for hundreds of billions and ultimately trillions of dollars added to the Fed's balance sheet in the form of commercial bank reserves. Yep. And now, of course, $4 trillion sounds quaint. Um, fast forward to 2020 and, and COVID and went up to, to $9 trillion at one point, again, reflected as bank reserves. So some, some listeners may be familiar with David Stockman's book, The Great Deformation, where he describes that period of 07 and describes his version of what, how things would have been okay had the Fed not done all that, basically the beginning of what turned out to be QE. Mm-hmm. What is your version of that? What is George's version, George Gammon's version of, could the Fed have done nothing if, in fact, bank reserves don't matter? Yeah, the way I'd look at that, Jeff, is I'd ask myself the question, what did the Fed do that J.P. Morgan could not have done? And let's just assume that there was still uh, $8 billion of bank reserves, electronic bank reserves, on the Fed's balance sheet in 2008 and nine, like there was in 2007, right? So the Fed came in and they bailed out, let's just say, you know, AIG or, or whatever they did. They, they increased their reserve. They took these shit assets off these banks' balance sheets and kind of came in to save the day. Okay, why couldn't J.P. Morgan have done that? The answer is they could have. Uh, Mechanically, they could have if they were willing to assume the risk. And they could have done that with no bank reserves. Uh, The government could have done the exact same thing. So you see, it's it's not – the problem wasn't that we didn't have enough bank reserves. The the problem is that no one was willing to lend or create the quote-unquote dollars to bail out the system. So the Fed had to step in and do that. Now, did I don't, I don't know David's take on this, but did the Fed actually bail out the system? Or was it something like changing mark-to-market accounting in 2009? Was that the, the, the catalyst? I don't know. I don't think that we'll ever know. But my point there is once the system was uh, once the marketplace looked at the overall system and said, okay, we're in the clear, we're in the clear. Let's just say that that resulted uh, or that level was a trillion in bank reserves. Now, I would argue that that had really nothing to do with the amount of reserves. It was just simply that the Fed signaled that there would be a backstop, right? basically a, a bailout. So once the, the the risk level has gone down to maybe not where it was in 2007, but down to a level where the banks would start lending again, if the reserves are not needed, which I think is isn't even debatable when you look at the level of reserves prior to 2007, then whether there was a trillion in reserves or nine trillion in reserves, it, it didn't matter to the actual banks themselves. There was, there's nothing that the way that I said it the other day on Twitter is there's nothing that the banks can do with a trillion dollars in reserves that they can't do with 10 billion in reserves. And if you exclude just exchanging reserves for currency, like actual cash, you know, if a a customer wants a thousand bucks or something, if you exclude that from the equation, then there's nothing 
the banking system can do with a trillion dollars in bank reserves that they can't do with zero, literally zero bank reserves. So th- th- that's hopefully that makes sense, uh, Jeff. And it, it, it's I don't mean to say that the bank or the Federal Reserve can't bail out the system, and that's not anti-deflationary. That, that's that's not really my point. My point is more so that when we're looking at the level of the Fed's balance sheet in terms of bank reserves in 2012, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 99% of the time when we're not in this crisis mode, the market and the market participants still get hyper-focused. I mean, Gordon the gentleman that was on before, he's a perfect example. <laughs> he's a shining example of this. Just, I mean, myopically focused, hyper-obsessed on the actual Fed's balance sheet, right? And the, the point I'm trying to make is I think that is misplaced. I think it's totally misplaced because uh, in normal times, in 2021, 2022, 2023, it doesn't matter if the there's nine trillion or nine hundred billion or whatever it is. If the banks have an opportunity to lend and make a profit, they're going to do it. They're going to absolutely do it. And if you think about it in those terms, I don't know how you can argue that. Well, the 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 reserves are somehow going to constrain bank lending. Like like I use that example. I, I, maybe you you weren't on the call of J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo or whoever it is. Just having this great opportunity to loan out, let's say, a billion dollars and make this huge profit. But yet they're like, ah, my gosh, we want to do this. But unfortunately, Mr. Customer, we can't because we don't have enough bank reserves. We only have these stupid treasuries on our balance sheet. And if only the Fed would buy these dumb treasuries from us, then we could go ahead and create all this additional liquidity that would allow people to go and buy stocks as an example. Like, like when you say it that way and actually think it through in in uh, in practice, it, it seems kind of silly, right? But yet for some reason, the market revolves around the, the Fed injecting liquidity or taking liquidity away from the system. And one of the things that I said the other day, and I would challenge um, a lot of the people in the, the sound money space because a lot of the people in the sound money space, you know, are, are, have this view that the Fed is at the absolute center of the monetary system and everything revolves around the Fed. That they have this view. But what's interesting is let's just assume for a second that I'm right. You don't have to agree, but let's just assume for a second that I'm right and that bank reserves don't matter at all. Well, then what power does the Fed have? It, it, it's all psychological. Right. And, 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 and if we believe the Fed has power, then the Fed has power. But if we don't believe the Fed has any power whatsoever, they don't. So I would challenge my libertarian friends out there to maybe have a different view of the Fed. And if you really want to end the Fed, if you really want to take away their power, stop pushing this narrative that they have all the power and that their balance sheet does matter, and that they are at the center of the monetary solar system. That, that's the easiest thing that we can do right now in our power to actually end the Fed and get back to a free market, for heaven's sakes. You know, one thing, Jeff, I, I've read a lot of the Wall Street journals from the 1940s, 
when the Fed was involved and uh, you know yield curve control and you know all the the stories. And I I have literally read you know not everyone, but I've probably read uh, the main stories from maybe fifty Wall Street journals throughout that time. You know how many times the Wall Street Journal mentioned the Federal Reserve? You can probably guess. Zero. Zero. And this is while they're doing yield curve control. Basically, you know, the 1940s version of QE. So the, the, the Fed was a laughing stock. No, no one, you couldn't, no one knew who the Fed governor was. No one, they couldn't give a shit less about the Fed minutes or the Fed statement or any of this nonsense. No. And I would argue that, uh, back, you know, not in the 1940s, obviously, price controls or whatnot. But I would argue that if we could just go back to that time when nobody gave a shit who the Fed chair was and nobody gave a shit about the Federal Reserve themselves, they didn't care about their stupid balance sheet. I think that we would be much closer, not we, we wouldn't get there, but we'd be much closer to a free market. And then we would by just sitting here basically obsessing over every little thing the Fed does and actually taking actions based on, if I'm right, what is effectively an Indian rain dance that might have correlation, but has no causal effect mechanically whatsoever. So do you think fiscal is far more important, far more damaging? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. And so this, this is a, a great point. And, you know, I, I try to think about the 2020s, and I agree with Lynn uh, 100% that the 2020s will likely be not the 1970s, but more so the 1940s, and, and where you have these huge spikes of inflation, but then you could actually see consumer price deflation as well. Like in 47, you know, we had 19% inflation and uh, 49 or so it was down to negative two. And uh, this is all just based on, you know, the distortions that the government is creating in the overall economy. And this is another thing that I really try to get the the, the Bitcoiners and the gold bugs and everything to, to talk about, because these guys and gals are so passionate about it. But they put all of that passion and energy into just let's change the money and that this is a panacea. If we could just go to a, you know to Bitcoin, well, then all our problems would be solved. Or if we could just go to a gold standard, then all of our problems would be solved. But if you look at it, 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 it isn't really the money when you compare the gold standard to today. It's more so government spending as a percentage of GDP. That's really what, what, what mat- in my view, based on my research, that's what matters. And it makes sense because if the government is inefficient, if they occupy – 50% of the, the economy compared to 5% prior to the, uh, you know, let's say the 1913 uh, and the income tax and the Fed and whatnot, that economy is going to be way more efficient. And if the banks are creating the same amount of currency units, then if the economy is more efficient, you're most likely going to have a lot less consumer price inflation because we're creating more goods and services instead of just creating currency units to buy stocks or something like that. So I think that, yes, it's in my view, we'd get a lot more bang for our, if we did, yes, we want to talk about money. It's very important. We want to talk about sound money. We want to talk about deflation, productivity, free market, full reserve, fractures. We want to talk about all this stuff. But we also want to talk about the importance 
of uh, convincing people that it, you you have to vote for less government spending. Because let's just say that we went onto a gold standard with full reserve. Would that change anything? I don't know that it would. Because right now, we uh, just tax receipts, for heaven's sakes, it's about 35% when you consider state and local and whatnot. About 35% of, of uh, GDP. So that means that e- even with no deficit spending, Whatsoever, just the money that people that are, people are giving the government, and let's remember the people voted for that. The people voted for the government to take thirty-five percent of their money. So then the question becomes: with thirty-five percent, you know, assuming that that's what we'd have if the people voted the same way with a gold standard with full reserve banking, at thirty-five percent, would we still have these inflationary pressures that have been created by the government distorting the economy to begin with? And I would argue that they would be lower, but they would still be there. That's the real problem. We, we have to convince people collectively that, you know, let's, okay, focus on the money, but more importantly, we have to reduce government spending. Jeff, a, a question that I would pose to you, and I'd love to hear your feedback. Would you prefer to have a society that valued sound money, but, uh, or would you rather have a society that was on a gold standard, but favored big government or government spending? Or would you prefer to have a society that was on a complete fiat standard, but believed in small government? Which do you think would oh, do better? I, I would take the latter for sure. So would I. So would I. But, but here's, here's the thing. I mean, you want to look at what government's taking out of the economy. I would rather have deficits and a smaller government and smaller taxes than a government that was, ba- you know, balanced budget at a higher percentage of the what I would consider the legitimate or private economy. Um, right. So we, we can talk about fiscal versus monetary. And I, I'm increasingly interested in this idea about the Fed being you know, really a relatively tiny or insignificant actor. But let's let's just touch on, on one other thing, and that's interest rates. I think most observers would say, look, when when Paul Volcker was Fed chair. He was actively targeting this Fed funds rate, which is a, a little bit of a funny thing. People, I think people view it more mechan- mechanistically than it, than it actually works. But nonetheless, yeah. I mean, people were legit paying 18% and thereabouts for a mortgage. And then mm-hmm. fast forward to, you know, what, what people call several years of, of ZERP and, and, and get to 2020 and COVID and and I mean, you literally you had negative yields on some euro debt. You had basically almost zero, or, or you had mortgages in the in the U.S. going below three percent. Maybe they went below two percent. I don't recall. I mean, mm-hmm. would you say, like John Tamney? Some of you probably know him at Real Clear Markets in Forbes. He he would say that eighteen percent mortgages at Volcker's time and two percent mortgages in twenty twenty had nothing to do with the Fed. That was, that was literally the marketplace setting those rates. Yeah, I mean, I would take it a step further. I, I would say that uh, there was the Fed might have, by uh, decreasing interest, let's just take uh, 2009 to whatever, 2018 or something, like when they had this ZERP policy. Uh, I would argue that, especially the 10-year Treasury, uh, might have even been uh, higher than a market rate. 
And here's the reason I say that. Let's just go through a quick thought experiment. I'd love to hear your take on this. But let's just assume for a moment that the 10-year treasury in 2000, whatever, 15, was trading at 1.5% or 2%, let's say. It might have been something like that. And let's just say that the Fed had uh, interest rates at zero, the overnight rate. Okay. Well, we know that a big portion, I would argue 90% of the 10-year treasury yield is going to be future growth and inflation expectations. So if it is, if the market believes that the Fed increasing interest rates is going to decrease inflation expectations, then what would the 10-year treasury yield have done if the Fed would have taken rates from 0%, let's just say up to 2%, would the 10-year treasury yield have gone up or down if the 10-year treasury yield is based on future inflation and growth expectations? You know what that starts to sound like, George? Animal spirits. What, what I think is that the 10-year treasury yield would have gone down. Because if the Fed raises rates at the front end, you could argue how that would be that would be uh, that would create an environment where inflation and growth expectations would decline. Why, why, why do you think U.S. sovereign debt stayed nominally positive when, when some euro bonds went negative? Would you say that that was fiscal or reflection on the relative productivity of the U.S. economy? Again, I think it would probably go back to inflation and growth expectations. I mean, you're, you're looking at inflation and growth maybe a bit more positive in the United States. And that's why you had, and, and again, Jeff, let's be clear. I'm talking about the 10 year, you know, uh, I don't dispute that the fed, if uh, they took interest rates tomorrow, let's say up to 20%, that the front end of the curve would go up. But, but, could but that, I mean, that's a good, I mean, can't, can the fed take interest rates anywhere? So this is a great question. This is a fantastic. John, John Tammy would say no. I, I would I would lean in that direction, but but let's go through the mechanics here because th- this is really really interesting. So when we're talking about Paul Volcker in taking rates up to eighteen percent, what was the mechanism that the Fed had to do? Because uh, they didn't have IOR back then. Remember, they they weren't paying right. interest on reserves. So what was the at least in theory? What was the mechanism that they used? Well, it was simply increasing or decreasing slightly the amount of reserves. So theoretically, if the Fed wanted to increase the overnight lending interbank, then what they would do is they would just take some reserves out of the system. And if demand stays the same, well, then all of a sudden, you know, then the price is going to go up and the the interest rate is going to increase. But if they inject more reserves into the system, if demand is uh, is, uh, the same, supply increases, and then the price or the interest rate goes down. Right. That that was the theory as to how Paul Volcker would take rates up or down or Greenspan or anyone really before uh, QE and they invented IOR. So what you would assume there, Jeff, is that if the Fed is taking interest rates from, let's say, Volcker times at – let's just say it was 15 percent to make the math easy. And let's just say they were taking it down to 5 percent in whatever before the GFC – uh, in 2006, 2007. Well, in order to do that, especially if M2 money supply is going from, let's say, 1.5 trillion up to 2.5, or excuse me, uh, 7.5 trillion. I'm using 1980 compared to 2007. 
in order because that would mean that demand, if they're actually using bank reserves, would go way up, way up because of M2 and all this settlement that needs to happen on the Fed's balance sheet. Well, if demand goes way, way up, in order to get interest rates down, what would have had to have happened to the amount of reserves? They would have had to skyrocket. They would have had to not only go up at the same rate of M2, but they would have had to go up even more to get the overnight rate from 15% down to 5%. But as, as we know, looking at a chart of bank reserves, they were $40 billion in 1980, and they were $40 billion in 2007. They didn't do anything to them. Absolutely nothing. So what? So how did they make interest rates? That what they did is they just came out and just said, "Hey, interest rates are what? Let's say they're six uh, percent or something." They say, "Hey, we're changing interest rates to five percent." So what would happen is they're basically saying that we are going to buy or sell. Tre- we're going to do open market operations if you, the banks don't lend to each other at this interest rate. And then what the banks did is they would go ahead and lend at that interest rate because then they know the Fed would come in and do open market operations. But the punchline there is that the Fed never, ever, ever, ever had to do open market operations. Uh, you know, a, a little bit here and there, but but you know, taking it from 40 billion up to 41 and then right back down to 40.5 or something like that. Right. So in the grand scheme of things, again, it it might as well have been zero. So the Fed never really had to do open market operations to manage the interest rate. Then and especially if demand, if these bank reserves were being used, would have gone through the roof parabolic. Then you can tell just by that alone that the banks weren't even using these reserves. They weren't even using them. That's why the Fed could get rates down, or that's why rates did come down at the front end without the Fed ever, ever, ever having to use that mechanism that of open market operations, which is supposedly how they manage rates prior to IOR. It sounds to me like a lot of this, I mean, I've always thought this, just the opacity of all this, the, the circular nature of the Federal Reserve System, the commercial banks, Treasury issuing debt, the Fed and other central banks buying it. I mean, there, there is an argument to have all of this, well, to have no central bank, obviously, and to have all yeah. of this handled on the political, fiscal side. I mean, I think the average American would understand it far better if they could actually see their Congress critter, you know, voting yay or nay on this month's money issuance increase, right? I mean, the, the circularity of all this, it's, it, here's the thing, is people way smarter than me Professional trained economists spend their entire careers studying this stuff, reading the history of banking, you know, studying the plumbing, the mechanics, and still have virulent disagreements over how the hell this works. So that mm-hmm. strikes me as a crazy way to run the economy of a country or, or to try to run the economy of a country. Yeah, or, or what I suggest we do is just – for heaven's sake, just get the central planners out of it. I mean, let's, why can't the market determine interest rates? I mean, it already is, right? And, and, and I would argue, too, that even at the front end of the curve, was the Fed telling the market where it wanted rates? Or was the market right. telling the Fed where rates were going and the Fed just went along well, with, I, with, for the ride? I think an, a, a small example of that is 
super subprime, even even at the lowest interest rates, basically, in human history. If you went to those shady car lots in the bad part of town, if you went to a rent-a-center or a check-cashing place, the, the, the kind of places that really poor people use all the time, it was still well over 20%. Yeah. Look, a great point here, Jeff, that you just made, and I just remember this because I did a video on it a couple of years ago, is during ZERP, we had all-time high in, in credit card interest rates. That was during ZERP. So it's just kind of to dovetail on exactly what you were saying. But I just think, you know, I think we can, it, it's just, again, it, it's simple, but it's not easy to enact these policies. But let's just get the Fed out of the equation. Get well, Let's take the, the Javier Malay approach. I think that's great. Get the government out of the equation. Why do we have congressmen even talking about money supplier interest? Forget them. Just let the market just determine the overnight rate. Let the banks determine what they want to lend to each other. We know they can create the liquidity. That That's undisputable. They can create as much liquidity as they want. That they are not constrained, other than just by risk. So, and then let's. Why don't we just go back to the free banking system that we had in the 1800s? And if the free market chooses Bitcoin, fantastic, great. If the free market chooses Bitcoin and fractional reserve banking or full, fantastic. Let's just go through this process, and may the best man win. And are you going to sit there and actually argue that we need a, a central planner? For the price of money? Are, are you going to sit there and tell me that we need the, the central planet for this and this and this and this? And if so, how the hell did we have, uh, you know, just massive amounts of real GDP growth back prior to these central planners being involved in the system to begin with? And if the argument is like a Krugman argument where, oh, well, now the economy is far more complex or now the banking system is far more complex. No, it's not. I just did a video on this that will come out next week, a whiteboard, where I compared the banking system today to the banking system in the 1600s. And it's identical. It's, it's absolutely there's, – there's no difference other than we just have computers, right? So I, I think that's you know, the first step. But again, it has to be coupled, Jeff, with what we were saying earlier. It's got to be coupled with um, – trying to persuade our fellow Americans that we have to vote for smaller government, we have to vote for less government spending, and we have to vote for lower taxes. We, we've got to reduce the government's share of the overall economic output. That's priority number one. Well, George, I agree 100%. Thanks a million for the videos. I'm sorry, I got to run. Yeah, thanks for the comments, That's Jeff. We'll talk evening. to you soon. Okay, let's go ahead and bring up a couple more here, and I'm going to get to dinner. I'm getting kind of hungry. So we've got Cantro, and then we'll have Gray. I know he's been or she has been waiting quite some time, so we'll kind of let you guys come up and kind of uh, tag team it here. We got Cantro and Gray. You guys, are, you guys are up. If you've got a question or comment, if not, no problem. We'll just go to the next folks in line. Okay, while we're waiting, let's just go to the blind waiter. All right. Okay, blind waiter, you're up. Hello, Mr. George. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, it's an honor. Uh, long time, first time. I had just had a quick question. Uh, I, 
I'm sure you're aware of the um, expression, not your keys, not your crypto, right? Yeah. Can, um, can in your opinion, since um, there's a difference between a legal holder of stocks and a beneficiary, can, can I guess, CD and co, can they effectively um, rug people who, uh, quote unquote, own stocks? Or, or are there... Oh, like the great taking? Yes, sir. I don't know. I, I have not done that research. Um, I mean, I, I've watched the, I think there was a video I watched on the great taking. I think that was like an hour long, uh, something like that. It, it made sense to me, but um, I, I just not, I have not taken the time to research that. So, you know, if, if Lynn was here, I'm sure she could answer that question just right off the top of her head. But uh, I, I, I haven't done the research, so I, I wouldn't want to give you an answer one way or the other. Okay, so hey, uh, oh, great. George, uh, thanks for having me here, man. Um, sure. I just wanted to ask you, so I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Executive Order 1110 from President Kennedy. I'm not, I, I'm not aware. Okay, so, I'm not so there's a lot of uh, theories involved with that. Basically, he wanted to end the Federal Reserve and bring the power back to the government. And so mm-hmm. I was thinking that if, you know, if the, if the Federal Reserve doesn't matter, you know, he's the last president that got a bullet through his head. So I think yeah. with the executive order 1110, it's, it's pretty significant part of history that uh, I think a lot of people overlook. And I wonder what you think about that. If you think it would be better to keep the Federal Reserve, which is actually a private entity and it's not part of the federal government, should it be private or should it be the government? What do you think on that? Oh, man. Wow. It's a loaded question. You're, you're damned if you do, damned if you – yeah, a loaded question, that's for sure. So would I prefer to have the Fed, quote-unquote, managing interest rates and doing QE and all this stuff, or would I rather the government do it? Because, I mean, if it was the government, it's kind of one maybe the same. it could get democratically elected. But then you have the same problem with money getting involved in politics, right? So Yeah, yeah. I mean – you're screwed either way. It's just, I don't know. I mean, if I had to give a slight edge, it might be to the Fed, but I, I don't know. I don't know. That That's a, that's a nightmare scenario that I, I hope we never have to, we, we never get to, although we might, you know, that's MMT, right? MMT is, is basically the first step is just combining the balance yeah. of the, the treasury or the government, whatever, and the, the central bank. And, um, you know, if we go down that route uh, with with not uh, stimmies, but with uh, UBI, which I definitely think we will have within the next five years or so, um, and I think that will likely be on the Fed's balance sheet, or you know, CBDC, and then them issuing a UBI uh, UBI through uh, a CBDC that would need to unify the ledger, and the the government may come to the conclusion that we're better off having them do it other than the Fed. I mean, you can hear the pitch right now, right? If we leave this up to the private sector, and, and this is the politician saying, it's not George Gammon, but if we leave it up to these bankers or whatever that, they're going to discriminate against this minority group and that minority group and all these things because all they care about is profit and making their money back and PNL, you know, their balance sheet and blah, 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 blah. Even if it's in the hands of the Fed that theoretically or technically has an infinite balance sheet. And therefore, if we want to be uh, if we want to promote equity, then we need to have the power of to create money 
uh, just like the Federal Reserve does, and again, this is the narrative, without the constraints of capitalism yeah. or without the constraints of profit and loss or having to be paid back. So I can totally hear the a lot of the politicians making this argument. Sure. So uh, is it that far-fetched? Probably I not. Have a, I have another question for you. So from my interpretation, the Fed has a 2% um, inflation target. And for me, I, I learned that that was based on the rate of natural discovery of uh, gold on an annual basis. And so hmm. what I'm wondering now is a lot of people are arguing for Bitcoin, which has a fixed supply. And so to use something with a, a fixed supply, uh, I think is almost as bad as using something that's fiat, which has, you know, no limit to the supply. Right. So I think I, I think it's kind of it's kind of the exact opposite of fiat, but it still has its limitations. So don't you wouldn't you agree that we need some sort of inflation to promote growth and stimulation for the economy? But it can't be so much where the Fed is just milking everyone's savings through inflation, but it can't be a stagnant, uh, stagnating through just having something fixed. So I, I don't know what you think about that concept, but I just was curious. Yeah, so, so it's a great question. And what we have to realize is, like Thomas Sowell says, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. So, and even, let's keep in mind, if we're all using Bitcoin – then there's still the question of, are we using full reserve or are we using fractional reserve? What is the, the market going to choose? Now, I, uh, along with Jeff Booth and Lynn Alden, believe that initially, even under a Bitcoin standard, the market would choose fractional reserve banking. Now, Jeff and Lynn, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but just based on conversations that I've had with them, they believe that over time, the market would gravitate toward full reserve because the, the, the banks, to, to Lynn, the way Lynn says it, is there would be a quote-unquote wrecked cycle. Yeah. And this wrecked cycle would be uh, pretty quick. And therefore, people would see this and they would gravitate toward full reserve. Now, I, I've got a little different view. I think they would still probably choose the uh, fraction reserve, assuming that the, the government wasn't involved. But that's kind of just a, a theoretical. The point I was trying to make there is when you say, if we're on a Bitcoin standard, then the money supply cannot be increased. That That's not exactly right. Uh, under full reserve banking, that is true. And then the base money can't be increased. You're, you're right on the money there. But if we're just trading these uh, IOUs, like we were under a gold standard, assuming that we're doing that under Bitcoin standard, effectively, the amount of money can be increased and it can be decreased at any given time. So the argument for full reserve or just not increasing the money supply at all is basically base money being broad money and full reserve banking is that you're going to eliminate the boom and bust cycle. Yeah. And I, I can see how that argument, there's some merit there for sure. The, but the drawback, at least is the argument, is that you're going to really limit growth because, to your point, there's going to be times when there's going to be productive means for uh, lending and there's just not going to be the money or it's going to be at a, a punitive interest rate, something like that. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the, the trade-off there. And then the trade-off with fractional reserve 
or uh, fiat is that when there is an opportunity to lend productively, there's always going to be the a bank that's going to step in there and say, yeah, we'll go ahead and create these currency units so you can create additional widgets. The, the real problem there is when the government gets involved or you know you, you get the bailouts and you get moral hazard, uh, so the banks start lending for uh, reasons other than creating goods and services, lending in a way that's unproductive. So those are, are but in that, uh, the argument is going to be that you're going to have uh, more of a boom bust cycle. So those are the trade-offs. That's, that's why I think it's like what, uh, what I, you got to find a sweet spot because I feel like with fractional reserve, you know, if you're saying we need to increase the lending, but why do people need more loans? Is it because like their savings has been inflated away? Is it because the economy really isn't as strong as it should be? I'm just no, yeah. no, just simply because you're, uh, let's say you're a widget maker, and uh, you're making a hundred widgets a day, and you say, well, my gosh, if I could borrow a uh, hundred thousand dollars, then I could make a uh, thousand widgets a day, and uh, you go to the bank, but the bank, let's say the banking system, only has ten thousand dollars. Yeah. In it. You know, I'm taking it to an extreme here, and so they say we can't give you a hundred thousand. We can only give you ten. So then the, you have two different options there. Number one, the interest rate could skyrocket to where it would attract money into the bank to where they could go ahead and make that loan. But then it might not be cost effective for the uh, widget maker, or the widget maker can simply wait until prices come down. Due to in, uh, deflation, deflation, to where all the stuff, the inputs that they need now don't cost a hundred thousand. Now they only cost ten thousand. Yeah. The the problem with that is, can you get that level of deflation due to the amount of goods and services that would have to be created without fractional reserve banking? Uh, maybe, but but maybe. maybe not. You know, it, it's a very interesting kind of back and forth. That's what I think. So it's like a, it's like a yin and yang, right? Like you need this. the The perfect system is is something that's balanced, right? And when when a well, system, I think you hit the nail on the head. Fiat there. system I don't ultimately think... creates too much evil, and then it returns back to like full reserve system, like you like Lynn was saying, because people are like, we can't have this house of cards anymore. We need to revert back to something more solid, and then the system becomes honest again. And then it over time it gets abused, abused, and then it turns into a fiat system. And then you know it's it's a natural cycle that has repeated throughout history. And I'm just curious because the yeah, industrial happened under a gold standard. But from what you were saying, uh, there was fractional reserve banking. Now I'm not I'm I'm just a uh, I'm a forex trader, so I'm not mm-hmm. as versed in the mechanics of all all the uh, the markets. You know, like. Like you, you guys are you and um, uh, who were you talking to earlier? Um, his Jeff. name was uh, Gordon. Jeff Dice and Gordon Johnson. or yeah. Gordon, Gordon, right? Um, but I, you know, I, I think that it's a little bit disingenuous to think that the Fed doesn't matter, and because I think they regulate, they supervise, and they actively participate in the markets, and that's that's why I think to say that they don't matter at all is a little bit disingenuous, but I know that I, I know that you don't, you probably don't think that 100%. I think it's more of just like a thought experiment of what we're trying to get at here. But 
I did, that was my two cents. Okay, so you, you made a couple really great points there. And number one, you said the perfect system. And I actually wrote that down. I think we need, all need to understand that it, that is impossible. Because why? Because we're humans. And, and, and we are imperfect creatures in an imperfect world. Yes. So regardless of whether it's gold, fiat, Bitcoin, whatever, it, it's not going to be perfect. It, that's, that's just not possible. So what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, what's the least bad system? Well, that's, that's <laughs> what's the least bad. That's why system, I think right? uh, because it's good because we're all we're all these imperfect, crazy, yeah. emotional, irrational human beings. And I, I think it, it would depend on the free yeah. market. I, I don't even have an opinion. I would say let the free market decide where I think the free market would probably land would be yeah it depends on the time if we're talking about the next two years probably a gold standard with fractional reserve banking um but that's just because people maybe aren't as familiar with uh with bitcoin uh you know when the when today's 20 year olds are tomorrow's 60 year olds um i would probably say that the free market would choose maybe something that looked more like a bitcoin standard uh with fractional reserve uh, that would be my base case but again that system is going to be far, far, far from perfect because the people that are, are are interacting and controlling it. Now, getting to your your latter point there, um, you think it's disingenuous to say that the Fed doesn't matter. Um, that that's a that's a fair point, but I want to be clear about what I'm saying. Okay. I'm not saying that the Fed doesn't matter when they come in and bail out a bank. That 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 is that is not what I'm saying. That 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 is absolutely deflationary. But I, I'm saying that you didn't need the Fed to do that, first and foremost. And then what I'm saying, or let's start with what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the Fed doesn't distort markets. They absolutely do. But I don't think that they, nest in normal times, outside of you know crisis bailing out, I don't think that they distort the markets with the mechanics of their balance sheet. I think that we allow them to distort markets through psycho through psychology because we give them power that they don't really have and that's what I was talking to Jeff about is that if we could just take away that power and understand that they 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 really don't matter you know other than sure they can bail things out but say so could JP Morgan so could the government you know in normal times the fed is just an innocent bystander a bystander if we could just take away that power then we could make a lot better decisions and the Fed wouldn't be as distortive to the overall economy. But my main point by saying the Fed doesn't matter is in terms of liquidity in normal times. So let's forget 2008 for a moment. Let's forget 2020. Let's go, and you know, obviously, if you go prior to 2007, I don't think there's any argument that the Fed mattered. I, I, I just, don't see that. Maybe a little bit World War II, but outside of that, the, the, the reserves didn't even move. So I, I yeah, don't but, know but, how you uh, can argue that George, they didn't. If, if they're actively buying treasuries and participating in the market, don't you think that can affect the markets? Because, I mean, if, if they're regulating but, but lending standards, to, they're, but, like uh, what was his name earlier? He was saying that when the banks lend, when they're able to lend out more, 
it gives people more money to speculate in the markets. So automatically it drives up equities markets and whatnot. When it's kind of like when all those PPP loans came out and the price of Rolexes went through the roof, you know, it's just, there was more liquidity in the system. So they're juicing up the system and then they have the ability to destroy that, that momentum. And so that's, that that enables them to transfer wealth. Um, because you know your average person, they might have stocks, but if they lose their job, what are they going to dip into? They're going to dip into their four hundred one k. You know they're going to have to liquidate okay. some of their positions, and so it's just a giant wealth transfer, in my opinion. I mean, I just don't, I don't see, I don't see how. I actually don't think we have free markets, and I don't think it's a coincidence that President Kennedy, who tried to end the Federal Reserve, which is a private entity not elected from anyone in this country got a bullet through his head. Okay, but let's 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 focus on prior to 2008. Right? Because you said if the Fed is in there interacting with markets, if they're doing all these things, then obviously they're going to be distorting things and therefore they matter. Oh, George, George uh, one more thing too. Uh when I trade yeah. currencies, uh you know, the past years we know that the Bank of Japan has been doing a lot of yield curve control. And in when you're looking at the charts, there's days where the yen is reaching certain levels and you can see gigantic candlesticks. Now, this is all anecdotal. I don't know if this is the Bank of Japan, but it doesn't look like a bank because the the volatility and the volume and the amount of pips that the market moves in that one day doesn't seem natural unless it's the Bank of Japan intervening, in my in my opinion. So that's one thing where, you know. Well, they're buying stocks. Yeah. So obviously the Bank of Japan is U.S. Treasuries too, you know. So they're right, manipulating but, the market but, in look, certain ways where we can't, I don't think we can naturally say that they don't really matter because. Okay, but let's, let's, let's take a, a hypothetical. If the Fed's balance sheet, let's say the amount of bank reserves that the Fed had on their balance sheet, let's say it didn't change at all, nothing, zero, for 20 years, and we had, let's just say, 100% consumer price inflation. Would you blame that on the Fed? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer for that. But how could you blame that on the Fed when they didn't do anything? I just I just think that if you have... But you see, in this in this example, the Fed did nothing for 20 years. They did nothing. They didn't buy. But they, what about they? They, didn't they loosen any- regulations for lending. So, no. Let's 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 just say they did nothing. They just went and played golf for twenty. And years. they didn't buy anything. Nothing. Well, if they weren't buying anything, then they they did nothing. But that's not how they operate. They do. Okay. They they intervene in markets all the time. Okay. What did they buy between nineteen eighty and two thousand seven? I'm assuming they bought treasuries at least. I'm see this is this is no. where I, this is where you come it's, in because I don't I don't know exactly all that. Yeah, but this is where you you, you got to listen to me because this is this is my point here, and and once you understand this, I think it makes you look at what has happened recently in a much different light. So the Fed's balance sheet was the exact same as far as bank reserves from 1980 to 2007. It was also the exact same from 1950 to 1970. 
So let's just say that we had around 65% inflation, which we did, between 1950 and 1970. But we, the Fed didn't do anything. They, they did nothing. So we, we can't blame that on the Fed. There, there's just but no how way. But how do we right? know for sure? Because this is, this is another thing that we have to think about. Because I've got record of their balance But George, sheet. the reflation that the Federal Reserve reports is nowhere close to the actual inflation. So how can we trust their numbers? How can we trust what the Fed but, is Okay, so, but, 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 but what you're saying makes my point even more strong. Let's just assume that between 1950 and 1970, they were understating inflation. Let's say it was 500% instead of 65%. Okay, but then again, how can you blame that on the Fed when the Fed didn't do anything? So you would have to come to the conclusion that there are other forces out there that are creating this inflation outside of the Federal Reserve. But how Reserve. do we know the Fed is not buying equities, treasuries, and the other? Because I can see their but balance how can sheet. But how do we know that they're not doing it through a separate entity? You don't work at the Fed. You don't, you don't, you're not in the office. You don't control the systems. None of us do. And it's a private entity. How okay. do we know for sure they're not intervening through, through third parties uh, in dark pools buying stocks on a you know how do we know that how do we know that? how do we know aliens aren't, aren't buying stocks we don't we don't how I'm do we know the fed's that. not aliens you know just saying yeah exactly exactly and and i agree with you I do. you know i i cannot prove that the fed isn't you know between 1950 and 1970 i cannot prove that they weren't out there buying treasuries and they just somehow kept them off balance sheet and they're lying that that's absolutely possible. Yeah, because I mean, who, but, especially now with the bonds, who who in the right mind wants to buy debt, U.S. debt? The bond market is not right, really so, functioning the way it used to, you know. So that is going to be the number it? one buyer of that. No, 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 no. Now, this is where you're same, way away. Same like the Bank of Japan. Look, Who's buying Japanese debt when the Bank of Japan is printing money like crazy? Only the Bank of Japan, the Bank of Japan holds most of its own debt. Okay. I don't know the numbers off the top so, of my head, but I know I know that's why if you look in the Forex markets, the yen is um, devaluing against most of the other major currency pairs uh, a lot faster than the others. Right. Okay. So who, let, let's answer that question. Who would buy a 10-year treasury right now at 3.8% when you believe Inflation is going to be a lot higher than that on an annual basis over the next 10 years, and you are going to get back a lot less purchasing yes. power than you gave the government to yes. begin with. Who's buying that? Okay. Well, let's assume for a moment that you are a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund or a bank outside the United States or um, you know, a lot of my buddies in St. Bart's were former uh, hedge fund managers and I talk to them, and I, I know the trades that they're putting on right now, and they still move kind of billions of dollars here and there. But let's say that you're one of these guys, and you believe that we're headed for a recession in the United States. And therefore, you believe that interest rates are likely going to come down, let's just say in the next year or so. So if you buy a one-month treasury and interest rates go down by – let's say 2%, you're going to have a very, very small capital gain. But if you buy a 10-year treasury or a 30-year treasury, your capital gain is going to be huge. It's going to be massive.
So you've got two reasons to buy there. Number one, you've got you could just go long outright because you're looking for capital appreciation. Or what you want to do is you have this huge portfolio of billions of dollars, you know, your BlackRock as an example, and it, this, these portfolios are all long stocks. Well, how are you going to hedge that portfolio? What you're going to do is you're going to hedge it with 10-year treasuries. You're going to hedge that with TLT. You're going to hedge that with 30-year treasuries. Now, let's look at another group of investors. Let's just say that your expenses are in Japanese yen as an example. Now, you know this a lot better than I do. What has the yen done in terms of the dollar over the last three years? Yeah, it's just been going up against the dollar. So it's been depreciating. So the dollar has been appreciating relative yes. to the yen. Well, I mean, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay, so if you were a Japanese hedge fund or a pension fund or whatever, and your expenses were denominated in yen, would you care if the inflation rate in the United States was 9% if the dollar was going up in value relative to the yen. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good point. But I, I think it's like the, the concept of like the dollar is kind of like the cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry pile. But that doesn't matter. That, that, that doesn't matter because you're comparing currencies with other currencies. You're not comparing the dollar to goods and services in the United States. We're comparing the dollar to the yen. And if you believe the dollar is going to appreciate in value versus the yen, then the 10-year treasury is a smoking deal. Because not only are you getting paid, let's say, 4% on that, you're also going to get a double whammy in the sense that the yen is going to depreciate in value. In other words, the dollar is going to appreciate in value relative to your local goods and services, and you get the interest rate. Why would anyone not want that? I will tell you. All right. So if you study fiat currencies, the average lifespan is 42 years. Now, we've been off the gold standard since 1971. So we're reaching, we're hitting close to that point. Now, it's a little bit different because we we have the petrodollar, right? And that's uh, created an artificial demand for dollars. But I think many other countries, uh, especially the ones joining the BRICS, are tired of the U.S., Basing and trading their commodities for our paper. And so I think you will see de dollarization. Now, I don't know how the mechanics work of all this. I don't know how long it will take. But I do know that if you study fiat currencies, the average lifespan is 42 years, just around about. Two things there. Number one, that Japanese investor that I'm just talking about doesn't care if he's not going to hold that treasury for 10 years. He's, he's holding it for a year, for two years something like that. And the probability of the dollar inflating away or hyperinflation or whatever in the next two years is incredibly low. And number two, the reason why it's incredibly low is because the majority of dollars outside of the United States, and I'm talking about the majority, I'm talking about you know, 95%, 99% maybe, were lent into existence. So I don't think anyone would dispute that. But that's a big deal because if that is true and if what you're saying plays out, let's say they abandon the petrodollar. So all of a sudden there's no demand for dollars. So you would assume that there's going to be all these dollars that are just piling up and then we're just going to have all of this inflation. The dollar is going to lose value. 
relative to the yen or you know you're going to have some fx risk there yeah right but 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 let's just hit the pause button for a moment because let's say that saudi arabia because they abandoned the petrodollar no longer wants 10 trillion dollars okay so what are they going to do well they got two options number one they're going to pay off their dollar denominated debt because remember those 10 trillion dollars were lent into existence so it's not just an asset on their balance sheet. It's also a liability that they have to pay off. So let's just assume for a moment that Saudi Arabia didn't want these $10 trillion. Ah, we're not doing with this. We're just going to deal with Putin. We're going to go with the BRICS. The, the, the U.S. is a, a, a dead-end street. But they still have the $10 trillion in debt. So like, well, we might as well just go ahead and pay off this debt because we don't want these dollars anymore. And moving forward, we're just going to deal with Chinese yuan. Okay, so what did the reduction in demand do to the overall supply? It, it destroyed the supply, I guess is what you're saying, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So the, what, where, what I'm getting at and why there's – now, I'm not saying that the dollar can't go to – 80 or 90 or you know even 70 or so on the DXY, I think it could. But for the dollar to turn into toilet paper, for the dollar to go down to 50 or 40 or 30, that is extremely, extremely unlikely because of the dynamic that I just outlined. Because the dollar, and look, I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just saying it is what it is. Because the dollar in the euro dollar system has created so many of these currency units that were lent into existence and such a high percentage of the overall currency units were lent into existence, you have this very bizarre where demand actually controls the supply. And if demand goes down, so does supply. I, I think, yeah, but what, what about this hypothetical, George? All right, so the BRICS, would you rather hold the dollar or would you rather hold, let's say the BRICS come out with a I don't know. Let's say they come out with a new gold standard or something back with commodities where, you know, it's it's more stable. Would you rather hold dollars, which you know that the Fed is going to have to do QE again soon? When, let's remember that QE doesn't matter. But yeah. Well, they're going to have to increase the the money supply soon. The, well, no, oh, they're going to have to increase the base money. That doesn't mean that it impacts broad money. Yeah, but what what happened? That means that the banks actually need reserves. The last they time don't. they increased M two by forty percent, did you look at the wave of inflation we just experienced? How can but you say that doesn't matter? That in, well, how can you say that the supply chain disruption didn't matter? George, eggs. If you buy a a, a carton of eggs this year versus before they did the forty percent increase of money supply, you're telling me that doesn't matter. But it does matter. No, I'm I'm not saying that. Listen to what I'm saying. Did the supply chain disruption matter? Did that contribute to consumer price inflation? Not as much as increasing the base money supply. So, okay, then why does base money increasing have absolutely no correlation whatsoever when you go back to 2008? Why does it have no correlation to CPI? I don't know. But I all I know is that we experienced a huge wave well, if of it inflation doesn't have any, after they increased the money supply by 40%. That that, but you're you're cherry picking. You're looking at that one time. If you look at going back to 2008, you see that there's no correlation between base money or the Fed's balance sheet and the CPI. So what you have to conclude based on that information is that did the increase in M2 was that a component of the consumer price inflation that we saw? Yes, 
I'm sure it was. But it was probably a very minor input to the overall inflation. And the majority of the inflation that we saw was due to velocity going up and due to the supply chain disruptions. Or else we would have seen massive consumer price inflation when the Fed took their balance sheet from $800 billion all the way up to $4 or $5 trillion. Uh, I'm under the impression that all the stimulus is what did the the made the major um, inflation, like all the stimulus checks. You know, I, well, I agree, but the, I but the, the government could playing, have done that without. If we're playing uh, Monopoly, and then I come in with an extra stack of five hundreds, you know, then we're all, you know, what, what's happening to the supply? I mean, I know that's pretty rudimentary, but. I'm just saying I don't see how handing out free money with quota- air quotations to everyone didn't affect, you know, average people through inflation. Like, and to say that. The- but how did, no, I, I agree with you, but how did base money contribute to that? Because they made more money and then gave it out to people. That's cr- increasing base money. Okay, well, let, let's, let, let, let's back up here. Okay. So the majority, to your point, M2 increased by 25%. 2020, 2021. How did it do that? Well, several ways. Number one, the banks were lending more because they had the backstop of PPP and whatnot. But number two is, to your point, the Fed was buying treasuries. But what matters more than the Fed buying treasuries is who was selling them. Because if it would have been banks selling the treasuries, then there would have been no impact on M2 at all. None. Because it's just a balance sheet transaction with the Fed and the bank. It doesn't impact commercial bank liabilities, savings account, checking account. But if the Fed is buying from a non-bank entity, to your point, that's going to increase M2 money supply. In, in other words, it's going to increase savings, most likely. Okay, so what happens is Janet Yellen issues. So what we know is that the majority of the sellers were non-banks. That's my point. So the majority of buyers from Janet Yellen would have had to have been those non-bank entities, or else they wouldn't have had the treasuries to sell in the beginning, right? So the Janet Yellen sells the treasury. The non-bank entity buys the treasury. That reduces M2 money supply, okay? So then when Janet Yellen spends that money back into the economy, then it increases M2, but on net balance, it's the same because you reduce it to begin with, and then you increase it. Again, on net balance, there is no change to money supply whatsoever. Zero. Okay? So then what happens is after this transaction has been done, the Fed comes in and buys that treasury from the non-bank entity. And you're telling me that the, the transaction's already been done. We've already had money go from the savings account to the checking account. And the Fed didn't do anything. The Fed just comes in after the fact and just takes that treasury, which was basically low velocity dollars, and replaces it with savings, which is the exact same thing, low velocity dollars. So when you look at the mechanics, how on earth did base money contribute to that inflation? The answer is it didn't. All right. So I think that's probably going to be I think that guy got sick and tired of me talking which I can totally understand so uh, guys really fun conversation obviously I'm super super passionate uh, about this stuff 
And uh, whether you think I'm absolutely crazy or whether you think I'm spot on, uh, you're totally welcome to your or entitled to your opinion. And uh, my main focus here and kind of putting myself out there is really to think through this stuff for myself so I have a better understanding because I'm always trying to improve as well. I'm always trying to understand the system better. And nobody, nobody understands the system fully. And for me, that's really exciting. That's that's really, really exciting. And that, that drives me, and that's what I'm most passionate about. But doing these things allows me to communicate my points, to go back and forth with other very, very smart people. And again, at the very least, whether you think I'm crazy or you think I'm spot on, if I can get people thinking about this stuff, like Jeff, Jeff Dice is a great example. You know, Jeff might not agree with me, but you can tell he's really thinking through this stuff and maybe more so than he otherwise would. And I think the net result of that, regardless of the conclusions that Jeff comes to, is that he's going to have a better understanding of the monetary system than he did before. And for, for me, that's what it's all about. That That's a huge huge win. So I thank all of you for hanging out with me uh, this evening. I'm going to go ahead and grab some dinner. And uh, I appreciate all of you guys uh, watching the videos and watching the content.